following radio programs are original broadcasts. While enhancements have been made to the audio for clarity and listener enjoyment, no other edits or modifications have been made. The listener may hear advertisements and notices for tobacco products, alcohol, food, and or services that may no longer be available, nor are they endorsed by whose blind life is it anyway. Listener discretion is advised. Hi-ho, cats and kitties. Welcome to the Afternoon Radio Theater Sunday, the show where we tickle your fancy with all kinds of old-time radio shows from yesteryear. My name is Victor Gouveia, subbing in for Pepsi Mama. The poor girl is sick, and I will not ever put a woman through her sickness just to make a show last. Anyway, as you guys know, Pepsi Mama is usually the one who helms these shows, but this week, eh, she wasn't able to do it. She's got so many headaches, it's unbelievable, and the poor woman can barely function. So, let alone do a show. But we did get together, and we talked about what she wanted for the show today, and I came up with the bright idea to, well, actually, she came up with the bright idea. I just decided to do it. Um, just pulling up previously unaired episodes of various shows. And while we're at it, we thought we'd bring back uh, Pepsi Mama's Strawberry. Now, you guys may know, if you've heard previous shows, Pepsi Mama's Strawberry was the end show to top off the spectacular Sunday she built for you throughout the show. But uh, we're bringing it back for this episode of Arts, and uh, we thought we'd... uh, See if it goes through. Remember, do me a favor. If you like what you're going to hear, hit that like button. No matter where you're listening to us. You may be catching us live on YouTube or on our, excuse me, on our Facebook page or on Twitter at Blind Who's. That's B-L-I-N-D-W-H-O-S-E. If you can't catch us live, you're probably listening to us on podcast, either on the main podcast channel of Whose Blind Life Is It Anyway, or on the Afternoon Radio Theater Sunday channel, which is available on most podcast catchers, whether it be Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, you name it, we're there. Even if you listen to us on a Victor device or on a smart speaker just ask it to bring up whose blind life is it anyway or afternoon radio theater sunday podcast and it'll bring all our episodes right up for you if you have any requests for a particular show whether that show be well of your liking or of everyone's liking. Who knows? Just write Pepsi Mama. She'll read your 
email and you can write to her at afternoon radio theater sunday now be careful sunday is spelt with an s u n d a e again that's afternoon radio theater sunday s u n d a e at gmail.com now the first show we have for you today is called the weird circle now this is a show that ran for two seasons back in the 40s and it was a ziv production uh which was recorded out of rca's new york studios way back when and was licensed by mutual broadcasting system way before and then it moved over to the nbc red uh channel or what is it is it a channel i don't know yeah network red network i don't know what that is i'm sorry you'll have to forgive me pepsi mama knows more about old time radio than i'll ever know and uh she knows all about it but it was a great little show for two seasons i mean in well, I guess in today's market, in the 60s, it, uh, two seasons for these guys would have been three seasons because, like Star Trek, it has 70, about 78 episodes. And um, it was basically a show that dramatized works by uh, well-known authors like... Uh, Edgar Allan Poe and uh, Robert Louis Stevenson and Charles Dickens. Of course, that's not the one I'm playing for you today. Today's episode is titled The House and the Brain. It's about a 400-year-old home that's been haunted. It starts off with a couple going into a home for an art auction and uh well i'll let the episode tell you about it for itself because it's uh it's i love the way he puts it he's got a really cute interesting uh little uh philosophy a man who lives with too much danger is always in peril or something like that. But anyway, check out the series, the episode, and see what you think. The House and the Brain. We are met in this cave by the restless sea to reveal the horror in man's mind. Listen to the weird circle. Listen to the waves. Listen closely, for you will hear the crying of lost souls. Our story discloses the horror in man's mind. This is a tale of the house and the brain. Come with me to London. 
through the heavy fog of the city to a large house in the suburbs. A young couple enter the portals of that house to attend an art auction. Well, hello, Jim. We've been looking all over for you. We've got quite a crowd here today. Paul Whitney, Sandra. I'm glad you've come. I thought you two were refugees from this sort of thing. Well, frankly, Jim, I've suddenly conceived a passion for good oil paintings, and I'm going to buy this fabulous painting of the ancient cutthroat. Well, to tell you the truth, Jim, she suddenly conceived a passion for cutthroats, ancient or otherwise. Oh, <laughs> my husband abuses me. I'm too nice to her, or she'd never be interested in any other man. But, darling, the man in the portrait's been dead 400 years. Dead or living, he's not beyond your charm. Oh, but my husband loves me, Jim must be my fatal fascination. Yeah. But I didn't come here to talk with you, even if it is fun. I came here to see that oil painting. Oh, it's quite a painting. Yes, so we've heard. It's in my study. Come and take a look before the auction starts. Hmm? Now, don't fall in love with it, Sandy. No matter how you feel about 15th century reprobates, I'm not going to spend a fortune buying useless pictures. <laughs> well, there's the picture. What do you think? He has a face you'll never forget. And a reputation. Yes, sir, he lived a full life. You know, he was supposed to have been fabulously wealthy. But when he died, his fortune disappeared. Oh, my dumpling aunt. He looks like the kind of man who sticks pins in people for the devil of it. Sandra, the strangest thing about the picture is the man's eyes. You get the feeling that the eyes are alive. Yes, very definitely. Clever work. Paul. What's the matter with you, Sandra? I could have sworn I've... I've seen that man in London recently. What man? The one in the picture. What? <laughs> Oh, he's been dead 400 years. Stop snickering at me, Jim. I know what I've seen. Impossible. The only thing left of the Honorable Cutthroat Richards is the house on Orchard Street. He built it 450 years ago, and it's never been really habitable since. Why? Well, this is your chance to laugh at me. It's haunted. Haunted? Oh, not really. Really? Oh, Jim, Jim, I've never met a ghost. And you never will, Sandra. Jim, oh, Jim, please, please, oh, please, imagine a really, truly ghost. <laughs> Wonderful, Jim, take us over. Or, better yet, I'll rent the place for a week. I've heard a lot about ghosts, but I've never been able to pin one down. You know, I've been a student of the occult for a long time. Jim, 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 please. Oh, Sandra, I'm serious. It's dangerous business, this ghost hunting. Uh, please, fella, anything to get Sandra's mind off buying that picture. Very well, but you'll find some very real ghosts over there. The housekeeper, Mrs. Browning, will rent you a room if you want one. But she's the only person who's ever been able to stay in the old house. <laughs> Thanks, old man. Come along, Sandra. But the picture. Hang the picture, my sweet. I've got a genuine ghost for you. open all by itself. There's no one there. Doors aren't supposed to open by themselves, Paul. What do you expect? The house is haunted, isn't it? Hmm. Doors slammed by itself, too. Woo! Tricky place, isn't it? You frightened? Not in the least. And it isn't my knees that are shaking, pet. It's yours. wonder where the housekeeper is. Her name's Mrs. Browning. Call her and see what happens. All right. Mrs. Browning! <laughs> Don't poke me, Paul. I didn't poke you. Well, I didn't poke myself. Oh, hey. I wonder if we're alone. Look behind me, Paul. If it's a ghost, I don't want to meet it quite yet. Silly, it's broad daylight. Anybody knows ghosts never appear until nightfall. Paul, Paul, look. It's the child's footprint right there in front of me, a wet footprint. Great heavens. No, another one. Looks like the footprint of a child who's taken a bath. Oh, my chubby, yeah. Listen. 
The footprints lead upstairs. Shall we follow? Well, it's the obvious thing to do. Ghastly cold in here, Sandy, isn't it? Ghostly cold at any rate. <laughs> You're not quite up to form, old girl. You sure you want to go through with this? No, I'm positive. Almost anyway. Sandy, the footprints, they disappear. <laughs> maybe, it's, maybe it's all done with mirrors. Good afternoon. Do come in the sitting room. Oh, you must be Mrs. Browning. I'm Sandra Whitney, and this is my husband. How do you do? Mr. Danvers told me you were coming. Won't you be seated? Thank you, Mrs. Browning. I hope my stepdaughter didn't frighten you. Your stepdaughter? Well, I didn't see anyone. Naturally. She's dead. You mean the footprints we saw? Yes, of course. Uh, you didn't see or hear anything else? No. Expecting anyone? Yes. They're coming for me shortly. My time is up, and I must die in the way they've planned it. They? Those who live in this house, Mrs. Whitney. Oh, God, Mrs. Browning, you don't really believe ghosts actually live here. Believe it? I know it. You see, Mr. Whitney, when I was first married 40 years ago, my husband, my stepdaughter, and myself moved into this house. They were here then. Why didn't you move out? Oh, we became used to them. Then my stepdaughter died. My husband had an unfortunate accident, and I was left alone. You've lived here alone ever since? Yes. Waiting for them to take me. Mrs. Browning, how much will you charge my wife and myself for an apartment here by the week? Charge? Nothing. Nothing at all. Anybody who has the courage to stay here is most welcome. But I advise you against it. Listen. What is it? Souls crying for release. Release from him. Oh, come, Mrs. Browning. You don't believe me? <laughs> you will when you move in. When can I expect you? Tonight at eight. How about it, Paul? That sounds jolly. You use the east wing. I'll have a fire lit for you. But let me warn you once again. They'll be waiting for you. Day and night. <laughs> Sandra, all back? Of course, Paul. Down, Blackie. Down, I say. Oh, if you keep squirming, I'll never get you on a leash. I'd better take some pistols along with us. Well, I'm not at all sure you can shoot a ghost, Paul. I'm not at all sure it is a ghost. Something awfully phony about all that. Oh, no. My intuition says there were ghosts in that house, darling, and I've a very perceptive intuition. Sandra, you're not going to take Blackie with you. I am. He's a watchdog, isn't he? But a dog. Now, darling, remember how nicely he caught pheasant last year. But pheasant aren't the same thing as ghosts at all. Stuff and nonsense. You ready? All ready. Here's your coat, dear. Oh, look out the window, Paul. So peaceful out there. You've always been partial to twilight. Oh, reminds me of the time you courted me. <laughs> it was such a nice time. Paul, that man, the one on the street. What man? The one standing right out there. Look at him. That's the same man whose portrait we saw at Jim Danvers' house today. Sandra, Sandra, where are you going? To talk to him, Dad, of 
my chubby aunt. It is him. Oh, excuse me, sir. I couldn't help noticing you and... You noticed me? You are Mr. Richards, aren't you? I've been known to many by many names. Oh, dear, please pardon me if I'm rude, but... Well, how in the devil did you manage to stay alive for 400 years? You will notice my eyes. Look deep. Deep. Oh, let me go. Let me go. Deeply into my eyes. You've never seen me before. You don't know me. You can never remember me again. Keep walking, Sandra. I hope you're properly ashamed of yourself, approaching strange men and asking them silly questions. Well, I'm sorry, Paul. It was stupid of me, but anybody can be wrong. Of course they can, but on the face of it, it was silly. Expecting a man who was alive 400 years ago to be roaming around loose. It wasn't a matter of looseness, Ted. It was a matter of largeness. Now, now, come on. Stop being a husband and hold my arm. I'll tear it off and beat you over the head with it. Mm, he's so virile. But I love him. <laughs> well, come along, Sandy. There's your haunted house ahead. We don't want to keep Mrs. Browning waiting. Or the ghost. <laughs> that door again. Insidious feeling doors opening and slamming. Mrs. Browning! Mrs. Browning! I'm in the east wing, Mr. Whitney, just lighting the fire. You better go on up. This hall's drafty. Hey, Paul, it's more than cold in here. It's almost as if something or somebody is draining your body of all warmth. That's a pleasant thought, Sandy. Now that you've scared yourself stiff, move. Well, I was just getting in the mood for ghosts. Where's the east wing? This way, Mrs. Whitney. Oh, hello, Mrs. Browning. Well, this room was cheerful. It's the day of my mood. Nice fire, nice candle. <laughs> quiet, quiet, Black. You scare somebody. <laughs> A dog scare somebody? Not tonight. They came tonight. What came tonight? You'll see. Better make yourselves at home while you can. Blackie, sit down. Over here, Blackie. Look at him, Paul. The hairs on his head are standing on end. Be quiet, Blackie. Blackie! Look! I told you they were here. A luminous mass. A blue mass. Sandy, be careful. It's materializing. Coming for me. I knew it. Coming for me. Oh, this is drowning, Paul. Fingers are choking her. Good heavens. Mrs. Browning. Oh, Paul, stop this horrible Cut thing. Coming
Danvers, I'm going to reconstruct the scene of the crime. Nobody tells Detective Hodges that a flesh-and-blood woman gets bumped off by a goat. But I saw it myself. Oh, be quiet, Blackie. If you'd only relax, Detective Hodges, and go away, we'd catch the ghost for you. Quiet! I'm only trying to help, but I... Blackie, stop! Sandra, you're only confusing the issue. Paul's right, Sandra. Sit down over here. Jim Danvers, if you side with Paul, I'll never speak to you. Now, Mr. Whitney, if you don't mind, we'll go over the details again. What happened? Well, Mrs. Whitney and I were here in this room with Mrs. Browning when a blue mass suddenly floated in the door. The lights in the fireplace dimmed, the candles were extinguished, and Mrs. Browning began to scream. Why? Because she saw a ghost. It's really all so simple. Sandra, my dear. And then what happened? The mass suddenly materialized, at least sufficiently, for us to see two hands. Two hands without a body. The hands reached out, grasped Mrs. Browning by the throat, and... That was that. Thank you, Mrs. Whitney. I suppose you expect me to believe that story? There's no reason for you to doubt Mr. Whitney's word, Detective Hodge. I'm not saying there is. But there was only three people in this room, and one of them is dead. Everybody's under arrest. Everybody, do you hear? Paul, Paul, it's here again. Look, Detective Hodge. Uh, Paul, Sandra. Oh, Paul, for heaven's sake. Uh, uh, what is it? An ex-murderer in ectoplasm. Sandra, don't be funny. Let's get out of this house before it gets all of us. It's gone. Yes, it's gone. Now do you believe us, Detective Hodge? Yes. Yes, I, I believe you. I'll have Mrs. Browning's body removed to the morgue right away. Paul, if you insist on staying in this house overnight, I'll not be responsible for what happened. But, Jim, I'm convinced that there are no such things as ghosts. Now, now please, Jim, take Sandra back home and leave me. I'm not budging without you, Ken. Uh, Sandra, don't be foolish. Well, no matter what you two do, I'm not staying here. Oh, go, old fuzzy beard. Take thy tired body and deliver it to a safe, warm bed. Poor Jim. Scared of a little ghost. <laughs> it's 11 p.m. already. Well, good night, Paul, Sandra. Nighty-night, Jim. What was that? You mean the footfalls? Yes, what is it? The housekeeper's dead, stepdaughter. You see? It's all so simple. Good grief. Good night. <laughs> oh, we've been all through the house, Paul, and I'm dead tired. Come on, let's go to bed. You go to bed. I'll sit up and read these letters we found in the attic. Blackie, come here, come here. Now lie down next to me. There, poor Blackie, poor doggy. You don't like the ghosties, do you, poor, poor, poor Blackie? Yeah, this letter's interesting. What is it? Evidently a letter from the housekeeper to her husband. A love letter. She talks about her brother's child. It seems her brother left his money to his daughter and she handled the estate for the child. Mm, that's jolly. Maybe that's the child she calls her stepdaughter. Mm. Let's see what it says. Listen. Since we have managed the child's end, you and I are more than lovers. We are partners in many things. Sounds as if they murdered the child. Yes, it does. Sandra, I wonder if my theory's right. If people felt strong passions, and if those passions linger in a house after the people have gone, couldn't that create a heavy psychic atmosphere? Well, those fingers that murdered Mrs. Browning were more than heavily psychic. Unhook the collar of my dress, Paul. 
Where will I put the letters down on the dressing table here? Just the top hook. Oh, better keep these pistols handy just in case. Something about a gun that gives me courage. Funny. Oh, it's midnight. I'm tired and nothing's funny. You know Mrs. Browning's sitting room? It seems to be an extra addition to this house. It, it juts out from the rest of the building like a sleeping porch. What's funny about that? Well, that horrible cold and the footfalls all seem to emanate from that room. Oh, you and your logical mind. Oh. What's the matter, Sandy? Oh, look. The fire's dimming. Oh. Just, oh. Just like a great black shadow standing in front of it. Give me my gun. Here, dear. Shh, Blackie, shh. Look, Sandy. A hand reaching out from the wall. The letters. It's got the letters. Great, Scott. Oh, my chubby hands. Watch it. It's the hand of, of the housekeeper. How do you know? It's got the same ring on she had on this afternoon. If that's not a ghost, I've never seen one. The fire's going out, Sandra. Ah! Sandra! It's all around us! Sandra! Sandra! Your will against mine. My will is greater. No. Succumb, succumb. My will is greater. No, you're a shadow. And you are a mere mortal who knows no secrets beyond the veil. I control the world of shadows. Succumb, fool, succumb. No, no, go away. You're nothing but an image. You will die by my command in this house. You will die before morning. Admit my will. No, no, I will not admit your will. You're safe now on your own. Just lie still, darling, and drink this. Oh, Paul. I was a fool to allow you to stay in that accursed place last night. I ought to have my head examined. I came over as soon as I got your message, Paul. Oh, come on in, Jim. Sandra's recovering from a bit of a shock. Yes, I heard about it. I warned you, Paul, that house is definitely haunted. I'm going to board it up. It's completely useless. No, that's not the answer, Jim. It isn't ghosts. At least, not in the real sense of the word. Why, Paul, after what you went through, you say that? It's too malignant for a ghost. Do you believe in the power of hypnotism? Well, I've heard some amazing theories about it anyway. Well, I believe some power controls that house. Well, that's still ghosts. No, because the brain that controls the house is still alive. I'm convinced of it. Well, where do you think this man who controls the house is? He might be thousands of miles away. Remember you said that the eyes in the picture of the fabulous Richards seems alive? Oh, that's ridiculous. Not at all. In some crazy, mad manner, Richards has kept himself alive all these 400 years. In some hypnotic way, he controls that house. Well, if your theory is right, how can we break his control? Well, I'm certain that his control emanates from the little sitting room which once belonged to Mrs. Browning. Yes. Now, if you'll let me... I'd like to hire workmen and tear that room off the rest of the house. Oh, but Paul, well, the room is only an extra addition, Jim. It can't do any harm to try. Okay, pull up more of that flooring. Did you hurt yourself climbing that partition, Sandra? No. Oh, imagine a secret room down here, Paul, right beneath the sitting room. You see, Jim, Paul was right. That's like finding a box with a false bottom. That's all for now, boys. Oh, careful of your head, Sandra. This room isn't very big. But it's as cold as cold storage. Well, now you know how a hunk of beef feels in an icebox. That's gay. <laughs> a musty old room. 
bed and four walls. And two drawers built into the wall over there. All modern conveniences. Uh, try to open them. They look rusty. Just pull. All right. Uh, uh, there. The drawer's open. Oh, nothing but a lot of musty old clothes. Listen, Paul. Nothing unusual, Jim. Just the same footfalls we've been hearing all along. I'm beginning to become quite fond of them. Look. Here. It's a miniature painting. Yes, a painting of Mr. Richards. Look at it. The same face as that painting in my house. Look at the eyes in the miniature. Paul, they're alive. Great heavens. They're moving. You better put that portrait down, Paul. Yes, they are alive. Living matter in a painting. Oh, Paul, it's getting colder in here. Oh, time. I feel faint. Faint and... Is it something unearthly? It's moving around. Open the next drawer, Paul. Hurry, I don't like this growing cold at all. It won't budge. The blasted thing. Oh, there it is. Why, Paul, there's a thin china saucer full of crystal liquid with a compass floating on it. That's a strange thing. Hmm. There's an inscription written in the drawer. What's it say? As this compass moves, so my will dominates everything within these four walls. Everything dead or alive. Accursed be the house and restless the dwellers therein. What's it mean? This is the brain, Sandra. Richards controls this instrument through hypnotism. He can control a piece of paper or a chair or even the souls of the dead. Then this house is haunted. Yes, haunted by a malicious, malignant will. It keeps a man's spirit roving restlessly after death. Paul! Paul, look! Look in that corner! Mr. Richards, you... you are alive. Yes, alive. Quite alive. Because I will to live. Very clever deduction, Mr. Whitney. Deduction? Yes, I heard your keen analysis of my activities. You are a hypnotist, then. I have been powerful for 400 years. Your blind stumbling onto my secret will not stop me now. I can will anything. I will the specters of the past to re-enter this room. In heaven's name, man, stop this. Oh, that black shadow. It's here with us, closing in. Yes, closing in. All those who have died in this house are my slaves, as you will be my slaves in a very few brief seconds. You are not the brain controlling this house. You gave that power to this compass. You transferred your power to this moving needle. Am I right, Mr. Richards? Put that compass down. Oh, no, I'll destroy it, Mr. Richards. No, you're completely powerless to harm us. Watch out, Paul. This partition's going to crumble. Paul! Sandra! Paul, it's good to be back in our own home. What happened to Mr. Richards when the petition collapsed, Jim? Well, the workmen searched the debris around the house for Mr. Richards' body, but no trace of him was found. I'm afraid that he escaped. Oh, no. You mean he's still alive and free, Jim? Yes, indeed. That's just what I mean. Well, he won't be for long, Sandra. People everywhere will be warned, and every corner of this earth will be looking for him. Even his will can't defy the world, Sandra. No one man can ever fight the world. From the time-worn pages of the past, we have recalled the house and the brain. Bellkeeper, toll the bells. Mm-hmm.
You know, listening to that story, you tend to forget how good some of the classics are. That show was based on a short story by Edward Bowler. I don't know if you pronounce it Bowler or Bowler. Either way, uh, he was a 19th century author, and it was a short story called The House in the Brain. I have to say, why they put that cackling witch in between scene transitions, I don't know. I guess they thought it was scary, but it was definitely creepy. Uh, at least I think so. But anyway, uh, that was kind of creepy. Uh, if you recall, last week, Pepsi Mama showed you... Uh, presented Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, which was about an insurance investigator that investigated, <laughs> for lack of a better word. But uh, there were two episodes that she didn't uh, broadcast, and that was kind of my fault, and 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 well, kind of Dropbox's fault, which I've contacted them about. But anyway, uh, those episodes are going to be broadcast now. This episode is called Slow Boat from China. And it's, it's about Johnny taking a trip to Singapore to expedite a cargo of tin. Now, there's no explanation as to what that tin is. In fact, throughout the entire episode, they call the tin it. Having said that, this is rife with, uh, well, all kinds of signatures of the day, uh, especially for private investigators. But aside from that, there's even a bad guy who sounds like Sidney Greenstreet. In fact, Johnny, one of the sentences Johnny uses is, your mom must have been frightened by Sydney's Green Street. Either way, check out Slow Boat from China on Afternoon Radio Theater Sunday. Be back after the show. Columbia Broadcasting System presents Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. The next half hour has its baggage packed to take a trip with America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, Johnny Dollar. At insurance investigation, he's just an expert. At making out his expense account, he is an absolute genius. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Home Office, Oriental West, Cargo Bonding Company, San Francisco. The following is an accounting of my expenditures during my investigation of delayed cargo aboard the SS Shanghai Wayfair, or the case of the slow boat from China. <laughs>
bank account, item one, $181.52. Plane fare from Hartford to San Francisco in answer to your urgent call. Expense account, item two, $3. Lunch on Fisherman's Wharf in answer to my stomach's urgent call. Item three, $1.20. Cab fare to your office. Dollar, my name is Fundy. I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you before. And may I say it's a pleasure meeting you. It's a rough trip. I'm glad it's over. Over? Oh, it's just begun. Here, Dollar. This is your plane ticket to Singapore. Singapore? Mm-hmm. You know, Fundy, I had a choice. Really? To come to San Francisco to see you or to take a case in Boston. A nice old lady on Beacon Hill clubbed her husband with an early American bed warmer. But no, while in New England boiled lobster, I'd rather have San Francisco crack crab. Now, all of a sudden, Singapore. May I ask why? Oh, yes. We've bonded against the delay a $120,000 cargo of raw tin aboard the Shanghai Wayfarer. The ship was due to sail from Singapore three weeks ago. Still out there, tied up in the Tanjong Pagar dock. What's the delay? Goodness, mechanical, or just plain mysterious? <laughs> I'm afraid it's little of each. We flew an expediter out there ten days ago to see what he could do. All the satisfaction we've had from this man Harrison is a report that since his arrival, the wayfarer's main shaft has burned out, her freshwater pumps have fouled up, and her steering machinery has gone on the fritz. You don't need an insurance investigator. You need a good plumber. <laughs> well, maybe you're right. But anyhow, you'll find our man Harrison, William Harrison, at the Crown Colony Hotel. He'll fill in the details. Dollar, you have only a matter of hours after you hit Singapore to get the Shanghai Wayfarer started on its way. I, uh, I must impress upon you the fact that any delay after that will cost this company $2,500 a day. Well, all I can promise is the old college try. Times like this, I wish I'd gone to college. Well, anyway, I'm in the right town to make my last night in the States a good one. A few drinks with the right gal at the top of the mark. A few rare steaks at Alfred's. A few dances to Freddie Martin's music at the St. Francis. Two moments alone in the arms. A dollar. Huh? That sounds mighty good. But your plane leaves in two hours. Two hours? Well, I guess I'll have to do without the drinks, some dinner, and the dancing. Spencer Cal item four, $120. Lost in the course of teaching fellow passenger how to play poker. My mother warned me not to, never to play cards with strangers on trains or steamships. I wish she'd included airplanes. You'd implied, Fundy, that the situation smelled. Well, you should have caught a whip of the city, especially the native sections, through which I had to pass on my way to the Crown Colony Hotel. I found it on Anson Road. I found myself a room. I also found William Harrison's room. Harrison. Hey, Harrison. But I didn't find Harrison. All I found was a calling card from my old friend Trouble. Wherever Harrison was, he didn't want to be. And he left a trail of broken furniture and blood to prove it. I searched the dresser. Shirt size, 14. Socks, 9. That meant Harrison was a small man. I went to the bathroom, shaving brush and toothbrush, still wet, indicating that he'd been there not too many hours before I arrived. Then I tried the wastebasket. In addition to one large glob of used chewing gum, an empty cigarette package, and some old Kleenex, I found a swizzle stick with a name on it. The Kanye Key Bar. 
All that meant was that Harrison had a head cold and was trying to cure it with Singapore slings. But at least I knew well he'd been drinking it. The Carter Key Bar looked out on the harbor. It was dark enough inside to give a man a good excuse for drinking nightcaps at noon. Your pleasure, sir? Say, uh, how are you on mixed drinks? Mixed drinks? Governor, if I don't know how to make them, I look them up in the book. If they ain't in the book, I fake them. Now, what will they? <laughs> Straight bourbon. Right, Joseph. Oh, hey, uh, bartender. Yes, sir. Are you by any chance acquainted with an American named Harrison? Harrison, sir? Yeah. He arrived in Singapore about ten days ago. Small man with a cold in his head. Oh, Harrison. Sure, I'm there right mm-hmm. enough. He's been coming in every night with a chief engineer from one of the ships in port. Oh, yeah? What ship is that? Well, the Shanghai Wayfarer, I think. Oh, the Shanghai Wayfarer. What's this engineer's name? He and our old arm, I, I ain't getting him into any trouble, am I? He's a nice chap, he is. A handsome tipper. This handsome? My goodness, 20 American dollars, why? Compared to you, sir, Mr. Frank Moore's downright typefisted. Well, now, that's it. Uh, I've done it. I let Mr. Frank Moore's name slip right out. My missus is right. For a little man, I've got a ruddy large mouth. Expense account, item five. Rickshaw fare to the Tanjong Pagar docks, ten cents. Tip the Pony Boy, one dollar. The ships moored fore and aft of the Shanghai Wayfarer were busy stuffing the pungent treasures of the East into their deep steel pockets. And the only sign of life aboard the Shanghai Wayfarer was the right hand of a burly gangway watch. It was holding a knife with a six-inch blade and slicing thin slivers off a plug that looked more like tar than tobacco. As a gangway watch, he might have been fine. But as a reception committee, he was no Elsa Maxwell. That's far enough, mate. There's nobody aboard and there's nobody coming aboard. It's all right with me. All I want is a little information. Where can I find your chief engineer, Frank Moore? You come to the wrong place. By the icebox over at the Singapore police. They fished him out of the harbor this morning, stabbed to death. Oh? Have you any idea who did it? Holding some dame he's been playing around with. No, I don't know her name. Have they got anything else? Listen, mate, my job is to guard the ship, not answer questions. Okay, okay, have it your way. Well, watch out for pirates. <laughs> the British chief inspector, Singapore police, gave me everything except an invitation to tea. But unfortunately, he'd never even heard of Harrison. He took me into the morgue, and a look at Frank Moore's body told me nothing I didn't already know. He'd been stabbed, all right. And whoever had killed him had sunk him with a hole in one. As for his personal effects, his maritime union card confirmed the fact that he was indeed the chief engineer of the Shanghai Wayfarer. A stack of crisp American $20 bills in his wallet made me wonder whether he hadn't been picking up a little extra pin money for delaying the departure of his ship. And finally, a photograph that made me admire the late Mr. Moore's taste in women. Whoever it was that said, never the twain shall meet, should have met her. She was half-cast and all woman. Her picture was inscribed to Frank Moore. Yours forever, Chandra. From the inspector, I learned two more things. One, the fact that the police had already questioned and released her. And two, her business address. 
the Wardlow Bar on Melee Street. Hello, Mr. Young. You uh, like a midnight sing song, girl? No. The only girl I want to hear sing songs is Dinah Short. Go on, beat it, will you? Oh, hey, wait a minute. Mr. Young? Uh, where's Shanda? Oh, she go across to Penang tonight. You're buying a drink, Mr. Young? Sit right here. Shanda! Tagoya! Get up. Oh, Jamunda, you. I said you were going to be so right one night. Well, you have coffee. Complete with stab wounds, no doubt. Why, you say that? Why, you ask for Chandra? I'm a stranger in town. I can't find a local chap for the Lonely Hearts Club. So, shall we find a quiet table? I don't know you. No, but you knew Frank Moore. That gives us something in common. Oh, well, there is one. Okay. <laughs> This doesn't sound like a very quiet table to me. In Singapore, you will learn whispers stand out in the quiet. They disappear in the noise. I'll bow to the wisdom of a native guide. But uh, who said I had any secrets? You talk about Frank Moore, so I know if you do not have secrets to give, there must be secrets you like to learn. But I tell the police everything I know, which is nothing. Oh. No, you are disappointed in me. No, no, not at all. You make good scenery. And I'll bet there's quite a story that goes with you. Oh, you find me interesting. I'm a man. Why do you come to me? Well, there are two places I could go for what I'm after. And you're much prettier than the SS Shanghai Wayfarer. I'm looking for a lead on a man named Harrison. Your murdered friend Frank Moore knew him, so figures you know him. You are wrong. I do not know him. I do not even know you. Oh, well, that's soon fixed. My name is Johnny Dollar. Your name is Mike. Especially the uh, dollar part, huh? You are very droll, but I see when you make this joke, there is no smile on your face. You are worried about your friend, Mr. Harrison? Yeah, that's right. Maybe he was lonely tonight. Maybe he does not want you to find him. Ah, you certainly make me feel much better. How about a drink? <laughs> I never drink before midnight. All right, then I'll wait. We'll have one then. All right, Johnny. But we don't have it here. We go to my house. There it is cool on the river. And there it is quiet. So we do not have to whisper. Midnight must have been invented for Singapore, and their house must have been invented for midnight. Only one thing looked out of place. Up on the wall was a souvenir of Chandra's war efforts, a real American baseball bat, a Louisville slugger. And on it was written, Remember the U.S. Marines. Everything else in the place was soft. The lights, cushions, Chandra. It is nicer to drink here, no? Yeah, may I say it's uh, a mighty intoxicating without a drink. Well, I wish the boys back in my high school senior class could see me now. What do you mean? In the graduation annual, they predicted I'd be a bookkeeper. Oh, uh, I do not understand you. And neither did the boys in my senior class. Johnny, please say things I can understand. I want to know you better. Maybe if I stop talking to you together, you'll get to know me better. 
to the second act of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. But first, here it is almost the end of February. All over the country, people are thinking about their new cars. All but one man. And he remains quite content with his old automobile and wearing apparel. An ancient Maxwell and a well-worn toupee. For these reasons, and for several others, named Mary, Dennis, Don, Phil, and Rochester, he now has the number one comedy show in America. All over the country, people think about him, too, every Sunday night. Hear the Jack Benny Show with Claude Rains as Jack's special guest next Sunday on all these same CBS network stations. And now, back to yours truly, Johnny Dollar. The men with the guns, described from left to right, were a fat man with three chins and a bald dome... And with him, a punk with a sneer in arms that were too long for the rest of them. They gun muzzled me into a chair and started making anything but sense. Very hmm. well, Sandra, my dear. <clears throat> we are at last face to face with the mysterious stranger, Johnny Dollar. Oh, don't kill the suspense and tell me why. He knows why. He came to the Wardlow Bar. He knew about Frank Moore and he was looking for the other one Harrison. That is why I phoned you. Well, <clears throat> it would seem then that this unfortunate chain of events is... Needing the final link. Yeah, this guy uses his head better than Harrison did. Well, Della? I'm using my head right now. Splendid, splendid. So doing, you may well prevent Harrison's death as well as your own. Oh, well, that's better than nothing. But uh, is that all you can offer? Skip the bargaining rest line. Takes too much time. Quiet, Corgi. There are times when money is cheaper than the results of your kind of blind violence. Well, Della, you do have a price. Take a tip for my last name. Stop bidding. I tell you, you're not, Rosalind. You're not sure he knows where it is. He must know. He was looking for Harrison. They both know. Keep it quiet, boy. Five hundred pounds English dollar. Where is it? At times like this, I keep my mouth shut and my ears open. Seven hundred and fifty. Surely, dollar, since you've entered the situation at such a late date, that is property enough. 
Oh, I'm a man of expensive taste. I've always aspired to such things as $200 cigarette lighters. Go ahead. Keep spitting out that wise talk and you'll be spitting out teeth. How'd you like to go swimming with your hands and feet tied? I could bite my tongue. Not just yet, Corgi, my boy. <laughs> this man is worthless, dead. Uh, perhaps, Dollar, we can induce you to talk in much the same way as we could prepare a parrot by <laughs> slitting the tongue. You know, Rosalind, your mother must have been scared by Sidney Greenstreet. Hey, Either this guy is nuts or he doesn't know anything. What I know would fill a police blotter. Corgi. You know, nothing of psychology, my boy. What this man is attempting to pass off as a show of bravery is based purely on the knowledge that he is, momentarily at least, of some considerable value to us alive. Now, Dollar, be careful. Before you make your final decision, bear in mind you've heard our final offer. Now, sir, what should it be? Well, the squirrel, the squirrel said to the little girl when she asked him what he wanted for Christmas, nuts. Very well, Dollar. Cody. Thanks. I finally came to in the dark, trussed up like a turkey, and lay there trying to figure it out. Obviously, the two rude dudes thought I knew something I didn't know. But what I did know was that finding Harrison had turned into a big, fat headache. Also, that I had accomplished exactly nothing towards beating the SS Shanghai Wayfarer over the bounding main. While I was comforting myself by repeating over and over that old insurance company soother, never say die, I discovered I wasn't alone. Hello. Huh? You, who are you? Well, you were here first, you tell me. Well, my name is Harrison. Harrison? Yes, who are you? I'm Johnny Dollar. I was sent out here by the Oriental West Cargo Bonding Company. Oriental West? Yes, I was supposed to do what you couldn't get done. And look at me now. Getting hit over the head and dumped in here must be par for the course. How long have you been here, and why? Well, I've been driving myself crazy trying to figure that out. Well, this little guest house, wherever we are, we're still... One set of proprietors. I can tell you who they are, at least by the names they're using tonight. Rosalind and Corky. They owe me 750 English pounds to tell him where something called It was. What is it? Well, it's a package. What's in it? I don't know. It belonged to the chief engineer of the Shanghai Wayfarer, Frank Moore. He was helping me try to get the ship on its way, and I, I owed him a favor. He asked me to drop this package at a bar. The, the Wardlow bar, yeah, yeah, that's right. I was supposed to give it to a girl named Chandra. She wasn't there, so I got her address and went out to her place. You mean that package is at Chandra's house? Yes. When I got out there, the Chinese maid let me in. I, I waited for good, and then rather than leave what might be a valuable package just lying around loose, I, I put it into the bottom drawer of a dresser and left. Oh, great. For such things, I go around laying down my life. Well, it's obvious that these men will stop at nothing to get their hands on that package. Well, when they asked you where it was, why didn't you tell them? Then neither one of us would be here. What's more, I'm beginning to think the sooner they get the package, the sooner our ship sails. Frank Moore has been a good friend to me. He wanted Chandra to have it, and I, I couldn't just turn it over to those two. Well, I've got some news for you. And this should make you really unhappy. Those two happen to be in business with Chandra. Huh? They're all on the same team. She's one of them. What an idiot I've been. Uh, well, here we are, all like that. You know, for a pair of guys who came out here to speed a shipload of raw tin on its way, we're doing just dandy. Well, lucky if we got this thing alive. Offhand, I'd say our host probably murdered Frank Moore trying to get that package. Maybe we're next. Uh-oh. Maybe right now. 
beam from a powerful flashlight stabbed us in the eyes. The sudden change from too much dark to too much light kept us blinded. Well, look who's here. At least the voice behind the glare wasn't Rosalind's and it wasn't Corgi's. But it was a familiar voice, one I'd heard and heard lately. He walked in on us, the flash in one hand and in the other, a knife with a six-inch blade. At first I wondered whether it was the one that had been buried in Frank Moore's back. And then I remembered where I'd seen it before. The man bending over us was the burly gangway watch from the Shanghai Wayfair. And you told me to watch out for pirates. Well, this situation is getting a little overcrowded. I didn't think there was room for any more. What do you want? You know what I want, Dollar. The same thing Rosalind and Corgi are ripping your hotel room apart for right now. Now, don't tell me you're looking for it, too. Two things I know about that package, mister. The name is Rourke. Okay, Rourke. One thing I know is that it's dangerous company. The other is I want no part of it. The only thing I'm interested in is getting the Shanghai Wayfarer out of port. That won't be hard once I get that package. Where is it, Dollar? Uh, I'll trade the answer to that question for a little freedom. Okay, hold still. Thanks. Harrison's next. I want him with us in case he's lying. All right. Okay, Harrison, roll over. Hey, you! When Lord bent over Harrison, I dropped Chick the flashlight out of his hand, ran across the darkened room, through the open door, and kept on running. Sometimes the long way around is the shortest way home, so I headed for Chandra's house. I not only had some getting even to do, but I had some curiosity to satisfy. Somehow the Shanghai Wayfair's failure to sail on schedule was tied up with a mysterious package. But how? Why? I just kind of had earned the right to see what was in that package. I didn't want you to be lonely. I heard your playmates say they were making themselves at home in my room. So I thought you and I could have a little chat. Maybe I've got a surprise for you. What, Danny? I think I know where that package is. Jenny! You gave that package. We both don't worry for the rest of our lives. But we must hurry before Rosalind and Cody come back. We go now. Okay, where's your bedroom? Jenny, what do you mean? Now, come on, where is it? Come, I'll show you. You can go and have yourself a nervous breakdown. Hey, this is more fun than unwrapping Christmas presents. And now I'll take off the cover. Wow. Now I know how the winner feels on Hit the Jackpot. The package was paper all the way through. Brown wrapping on the outside and green spending on the inside. Big bundles of fresh, clean American 20s. Thousands of the same kind of bills that the Singapore police had found in the late Frank Moore's wallet. It would have taken half a day to count it, and I'd wasted too much time already. There'll be no good to you without me, Jenny. You have to know how to get rid of him. Oh, counterfeit, huh? Yes. They are made in China. Frank Moore brought them from Shanghai to Roslyn to take to the States, but Roslyn was not here in Singapore. He was late, so Frank had to make some accident happen to his ship to keep it from sailing. But then he changed his mind. He decided he would give the money himself. But Rosalind caught up with him. Oh, I see. He was selling to you by way of Harrison, just before he was knifed by Rosalind, huh? Who talked him into that? 
You by any chance? You mean I could be very rich, Johnny. You'll never give up, do you? It's $500,000, there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that should buy about 50 years in jail. I'm taking this down to customs and you're with it. No, I do not think you do. Uh-huh. Time to play another visiting team. Come on, beautiful. I don't want you in the way. You drove me out I grabbed her, lashed her wrist with a cord from the package, and since you like money so much, I stuffed them out with a fistful of those troublesome twenty-dollar bills. I locked her and the rest of the loot into a closet, dashed into the other room looking for a weapon. And then I remembered that Louisville slugger from the U.S. Marines. I was glad they'd landed. I grabbed it off the wall, got a toehold in the carpet on the left side of that door, wrapped my fingers around the bat, swung on the back of my shoulder, and waited. Thunder. Thunder, my dear. We just came out. Two outs and one to go. Out and the side is retired. What a ball game. First, I take your guns. And now I'll sit and wait for you to wake up. I'll take over from here on in, Dollar. Huh? Oh, I don't know about that walk. I happen to be the guy who has the gun. Oh? Well, here. Take a look at this. What's in your wallet that I want to look at? More hot 20s? I'm not taking my eyes off you, Rourke. Okay, I'll turn it on with my hands up and then you can look at it. Okay, fair enough. But if you so much as move, I'll start shooting. That's the deal. Oh, it's a fine time to learn this. Are you satisfied? John Joseph Roark, U.S. Treasury Department. Come on in. I'm sorry I couldn't come out into the open before, Dollar, but I was too close to the payoff of this case to take any chances. Well, you know, I'm beginning to think that just being in this town is taking chances. That counterfeit's been fumbling through this port on its way from China for months. We had more staked out for a long time, but this is the first shot we had at the top. That's him lying there on the floor, Rosler. Now I've got him. Oh, your pal Harrison told me where I can find the only other thing I need, that package of hot money in the dresser drawer. Well, it's now moved into the bedroom closet, along with a package of hot woman. Well, then, Dollar, looks like my job out here is just about done. Yeah, I guess so. Hey, wait a minute. Hmm? You're from the Treasury Department. Yeah? Well, then, after you get all these birds into their cages, how about helping me make out my income tax? <laughs> Expense account, item six. Hotel bill, one night in Singapore, five dollars. Item seven, one new outfit, replacing mine, which was ruined in course of taking midnight dip in Singapore River, two hundred dollars. Item eight, twenty dollars. Bar checks for cheering up one William Harrison, your expediter, whose innocence had him running errands for the man who was holding up the departure of your ship. Item nine, three hundred and seventy-five dollars. Spent while killing time until the departure of my plane back to the States after the Shanghai Wayfair finally sailed. You see, this time I had four hours on my hands instead of the two you allowed me in San Francisco. Expense account total $1,407. Signed, yours, truly, uh, Johnny Dollar. <laughs>
a moment, we'll tell you about next week's Johnny Dollar Adventure. But first, for more exciting drama in the mystery and adventure line, remember CBS two thrill-packed Saturday night shows, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe and Gangbusters. Be sure to hear Philip Marlowe and Gangbusters tomorrow night on most of these same CBS network stations. Next week, CBS will take you adventuring with Johnny Dollar, hitting the hot spots in Palm Beach and New Orleans with the star of Hades, Diamond, on a trip all points south. Charles Russell plays the role of Johnny. Our music is composed and conducted by Mark Warno. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, is written by Paul Dudley and Gil Dowd and is produced and directed by Richard Tanville for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. You know, it's amazing that uh, he's got the insurance investigator part right down, honestly. I mean, that's how they behave. They charge you for every little cent. But anyway, uh, moving on with the next Johnny Dollar episode, The Lorelei Matter. Enjoy, everybody. Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar, eh? That's right. Who are you? Uh, insurance investigator. Well, are you that Johnny Dollar? That's right. Freelance investigator. So but now freelance. Who? I want the man who works for the Star Mutual Insurance Company, not any freelance. Well, I work for Star Mutual. You what? On occasion, at least. On occasion, eh? Well, if one of their clients has some trouble, you have to get on the job for him, don't you? Well, that depends. Who are you, depends. sir? Depends. What are you talking about? Do you work for him or don't you? On assignment, Yes. Then get yourself an assignment, then get yourself over here right away. Over where? Here at my apartment. What's the matter with you? Are you an idiot? Where else could I possibly want you? Has it by any chance occurred to you, sir, that I might not have the least idea who you are? Well, what difference can that possibly... Oh, oh, oh yes, that's, that's right. Yes, that's right. Uh, very well. My name is Timothy Jarrett. Now, get over here immediately. Do you mind if I check with Star Mutual first? I'll be wasting your time. Check with them after you get here. If I get there. Look, what Mr. Jarrett. What do you Jarrett, mean, if you do? You haven't even told me what your problem is. Do I have to go out and shout murder from the housetops? Murder? To get you to pay any attention to me? Did you say murder? Of course I did. Whose and when? Do you suppose I'd be talking to you if it had already occurred? Oh, I'm sure I haven't the least idea. Of course I wouldn't. How could I? But if you're not over here right away, I'll call that insurance company and have you fired. All right, you do that. I'll be waiting for you. You will. Hello. Hello. Well, it may be a nice long wait, Mr. Jared. The CBS Radio Network brings you Mandel Kramer in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Star Mutual Insurance Company, Home Office, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Lorelei matter. It was pretty obvious from that phone call that Mr. Timothy Jarrett was a crackpot of the first water. And I was all set to forget about him and go on about my business. But I had some errands to do in town, and one of them took me into the building where Star Mutual holds forth. So I made that my first stop and barged in on Ed Williams. 
Johnny. Well, how are you, boy? Glad to see you. Hi, Ed. What brings you here? Don't tell me you're having to go around digging up assignments these days. <laughs> Sit down. Thanks. Cigarette? I don't mind if I do. Here you are. Thank you. Yeah, I got a lighter. Right. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Well? Ed, I uh, believe you have a client by the name of Timothy Jared. Oh, yeah, Johnny. I'm afraid so. What's the matter? Why the groan? Well, I ought to be grateful for him, though, I guess. After all, that life policy of his has a face value of nearly two million bucks. Two million? Wow. I thought maybe he was just an old nut. Oh, he is, Johnny. No question about it. Just about as wacky as they come. Don't you know who and what he was? The famous all-or-nothing Gerard? Was or is? Oh, he's still alive, if that's what you mean. But, Johnny, about 40 years ago, Gerard was one of the cleverest stock manipulators ever hit the scene. No kidding. Made himself millions and millions. Mm. And in those days, you could keep what you made. Really loaded him? Well, he was. What do you mean by that? Oh, he still has enough to get along on. Plenty. But after the five or six beautiful dolls that he married and divorced, well, you know what they can do to a man and his money. Well, let's say I've heard... Thank goodness this present one seems to have a little sense. Oh, she's young and pretty enough, all right, but... Well, maybe you've heard of her. Name is Lorelei Lambert. She's an artist, and I understand a pretty good one. Came from Quebec originally. Oh? Spends a lot of time out of town, away from the old coot. But I'm sure it's just on account of her sketching and painting. I see. Matter of fact, the last time I talked to Mr. Gerard, that was, uh, uh, day before yesterday, she was off on another of her field trips. Well, what about the old boy, Johnny? Well, I got a crazy phone call from him. Mm, sorry, I, I guess I was kind of responsible for it. You were? Another of his complexes working on him. And I promised if it proved to have any basis, I might call you in just to shut him up. But I certainly didn't expect him to call you. What do you mean by complexes? Nothing else to do, so he worries about himself. Mm. A couple of weeks ago, it was a persecution complex. Before that, he was certain he was going to be robbed. Ah, but he wasn't. Of course not. Before that, he was sure that his apartment, the whole block maybe, was going to burn down over his head. And so on for the past couple of years. Well, what did he tell you it was this time? Well, he mentioned the word murder. Oh, I hope you laughed in his face. Who would ever gain anything by killing off that old character? You tell me. Who's the insurance beneficiary? Pretty little Lorelei, his wife. But he knows better than to think she'd ever raise a hand against him. He's given her everything, Johnny. Everything she can possibly need or want. Besides, she isn't the type. Is there a type for murder? Well, you tell me. If he was such a stock manipulator, how about some old enemies showing up? Maybe somebody he might have defrauded. After 40 years? Uh, I guess you got a point there. It's just another one of his complexes having something to do, something to worry about. Okay, Ed, I'll just forget about him. Oh, no, Johnny. Johnny, don't do that. Why? What do you mean? Got to keep him happy. Old Buzzard wouldn't hesitate to cancel out that policy in a minute. And I don't want to lose those nice big premiums. Oh, as long as he's asked for you, Johnny, you'd better go and see him. Hold his hand. Promise him anything you like. And then you can forget him. But you go see him, Johnny. Here, I'll give you his address. Okay, Ed. Whatever you say. Democracy. Why should such a type of society and government be considered the best? For at least one very good and important reason. Because the people who choose to live in a democracy have decided that they want to be able to tell themselves how they want to work and live. People who have decided that a democratic society is the best one have taken a tip from nature. For the law of nature decrees that all men are born free and equal and are the best judges of how they wish to live. When men band together and form a society, it is their desire that the majority of them set the rules for all 
This is democracy. And that is what makes democracy mankind's greatest gift, a legacy of freedom. The Fleur de Lis apartments, out on the edge of town, are the old-fashioned ultra-deluxe. A solid building of native stone built like a fortress. The two uniformed doormen looked over my credentials carefully, then told me to go on up that I was expected. The old-style elevator with its open cage was somewhere else, so I walked up the two flights, found suite number 3A, rang the bell a couple of times, then when I got no answer... Mr. Jared. Oh, now, please. Don't batter down the door. I beg your pardon. Wow. Standing there, just off the elevator, a purse and kind of an attache case in one hand and a suitcase in the other, was one of the most beautiful girls I have ever seen. Not just pretty, but beautiful. In her mid-twenties, I'd say. Petite. Dark hair, dark brown eyes, eyes with an amused kind of a twinkle in them. She wore a dark blue suit, cute little pillbox hat to match, dark blue shoes, white gloves. Mm-hmm. Is there something wrong with me? I, I, oh, I beg your pardon. Well, you said that. I, uh, I guess I did. Is there something I can do for you? I'm Mrs. Jared. And that is the door of my apartment you've been knocking on, you know? I know. I, um, I came to see Mr. Jared. Oh? But why? Do you mind telling me who you are? Oh, I'm sorry. My name is Johnny Dollar. I represent your husband's insurance company. Oh, dear. Has Timothy been pestering you people again? Well, he called, that's all. He asked me to stop by. I might have known it. The minute I go away for a few days, the sweet old soul conjures up something to worry about. He always does. Yeah, so I understand. I've been up to Cape Ann in, in Massachusetts, trying to paint some seascapes. Oh? But I just knew he'd get himself all bothered over something or other. That's why I came back today instead of next Monday. As planned, I just got off the train. Oh, it's pretty obvious you've been traveling. Horrible traveling in this weather. I, I, I probably look a mess. Hardly. But now that I'm home, I can... <laughs> Only, what do we stand out here? If you just take this bag... No, oh, yes, sir. And this little case full of paints and brushes and paper and things. Oh, I got it. <laughs> Good. Now, if I can find the keys... Ah, here we are. Oh, let me, hmm? With your hands full? <laughs> I guess you're right. <laughs> Only, well, Mr. Dollar... Yes? Well, before we go in, what was it this time? And you must excuse me if I gave you a kind of suspicious look when I stepped off the elevator and saw you standing here. You look nothing but charming, and you still do do. You're lovely. If I didn't know you knew I am married, I'd probably have to slap your face for that. Oh, you would, would you? Just to keep up with the propriety. <laughs> well, then I would, I would blush and I would apologize and I would try to date you for the evening. Oh, méchant. <laughs> <laughs> but really, now, what was it this time, Mr. Dollar? Mr. Dollar? After getting my face slapped, verbally at least, and for only telling the truth? Oh, who is being the charmer? <laughs> I'm sorry. But seriously, Johnny, what is it this time? I mean, his reason for calling your company. I don't know, really. He just said he wanted to see me, it's all. All right, if you want to be so mysterious about it, I'll ask him myself. Just put those things anywhere, Johnny. Sure. Timothy? I'm home to Timothy. His afternoon nap, I suppose. I hope so. 
Oh, now what's that supposed to mean? Shall we look for him? Of course. This way. Timothy. Timothy, dear. Maybe he stepped out for a minute. Oh, well, yes, I guess he must have. Timothy, are you... Oh, here you are, dear. Lorelei, don't go in there. But there he is, Johnny, asleep in his bed. Asleep? Just one solid blow behind the right ear with the heavy crystal ashtray that lay at his feet. There wasn't the least sign of a struggle of any kind. Nor was there any look of fright or surprise on his face. Obviously, somebody had simply sneaked up behind him, aimed carefully, and struck just once. He was a rather frail old man, and the one blow had been enough. Lorelei, after that first scream of anguish, sank into a chair, facing away from the body, and sobbed pitifully but quietly. Her face was pale and drawn, but even in this moment of shock, she was still beautiful. I called the police then, and during the wait for them, looked around for some clue as to who might have done this. Nothing. Nor was one of the doormen any help when I had him come up. No, sir. You were the first one to come here to see him today. You are sure of that? Yep. First it was you, and while you was going up the stairs, the missus come in and went by the elevator. There's the back entrance to the apartment to the kitchen? Hey, yeah. But any delivery boy would have seen him, sir, as he come around the driveway up the side. Mm-hmm. Tell me, are there any new, any relatively new tenants in the building? Well, of course, there's that Mr. Bascom, sir. Bascom? Yes, sir, he's the newest. Yes? Come here in 1937. Oh. But, uh, nobody, uh, came here to see Mr. Jared today. Not until you come in, sir. And Mrs. Jared came back from a trip right after. Well, the fact remains that somebody got to him. Oh, Sergeant, you made good time. Hiya, Johnny. Come on in, Doc. Well, Private Eye, what have you got yourself involved in this time? Looks to me like a murder. Sergeant Barney Foster is one of the most able homicide men I know. After Doc Bennett, the coroner, examined the body and was satisfied death was due to that blow on the head, that it must have occurred only minutes before I got there, he left. Sergeant Foster and I went over that place with the proverbial fine-tooth comb, but the killer had apparently left no tracks whatsoever. The only fingerprints in the last few days were those of the dead man. And that means planning, Johnny. It was carefully planned. Have you talked with Mrs. Jarrett about any possible enemies he might have had? I tried, Barney. Look at her sitting out here. I'm afraid she's just too numb by this whole thing to make very much sense. Yeah, poor kid. Better get her out of here, Johnny, to a hotel or something. Maybe to some friend's house. Even if she wants to stay? Yep. Is that an order? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, we've been over every inch of this place. All we found is nothing. Not very much of that. Whoever did it must have been somebody the old man knew, let in here himself. Even the looks of his face, the relaxed position of the body, no signs of a struggle, all bear that out, right? Can't argue with you, Bunny. So, as soon as I leave, I'm going to start a rundown on everybody that she and her husband have known or ever been seen with over the last five years. I have a lad down at headquarters who's really great at that sort of stuff. Good idea. Because the fact that apparently nobody could have come up here without being seen, but... Well, now, look. Yeah? You know, you could be the one suspect in this case, Johnny. Sure. I'm not kidding. You're the only one known to have come up here before Mrs. Jared got back from her trip. Of course. And the motive? Put the old man out of the way to leave a free path to his beautiful wife. You think that isn't a common enough motive? It may have been somebody's, Johnny. Well, now that I've seen and talked with her, I'm inclined to agree with you. Uh, Yet? Yeah. Well? Oh, nothing, Bonnie. Building up another one of your wacky hunches, Johnny? I don't know. Well, anyhow, you get her out of here. 
Better stay in a hotel or something so that nothing will be disturbed until I can come back for another look. Make sure we haven't slipped up somewhere. She can take along her luggage, can't she? Just exactly what you yourself saw with her when she stepped off that elevator. Okay? Okay. Nothing else is to be disturbed. I'll seal off the back service door and leave orders downstairs that nobody is to be admitted to the place. Okay? Okay. Okay. Except me. All right, Johnny. What is it? This hunch of yours. Barney, I kid you not. I don't know. But there is something cooking in that so-called brain of yours, isn't there? I told you, Barney. Okay, okay. But when it gels, if it gels, instead of taking things into your own hands, you call me. Sure. Promise. Promise? Democracy. What does it mean? The word itself is of Greek origin. Demos, meaning the people, and kratos, meaning authority. Thus, in a democracy, the people have the authority to rule themselves. But where does the authority come from? The authority comes from the people themselves. They put it in their constitution, and the constitution can't be changed by anyone except the people. That puts the supreme power of the government of a democratic country right in the hands of the people, and the people elect their representatives to run the government. In that manner, democracy gives everyone equal representation in the government. Democracy provides mankind with its greatest legacy of freedom. I took Lorelei Jarrett over to the Statler and got her a comfortable suite of rooms. Then I called up my best girlfriend, Betty Lewis, and told her what it was all about, and Betty agreed to move in with Lorelei for a few days to make sure she wouldn't go off the deep end. Also, I hoped that Lorelei might say something, perhaps name somebody that would give me a clue to work on. And Betty, of course, promised to keep her ears open. The silly feeling I had that a hunch was coming, a hunch that I couldn't pin down, bugged me for the next two days. During that time, there was no word from Betty and nothing but silence from Sergeant Barney Foster. Half a dozen times, I was on the verge of going back to that apartment for another look. But why? To look for what? Then on the afternoon of the third day, I decided the only way to make the hunch materialize was to go back there. But not alone. Well, now, I don't know, sir. The policeman said it was all right for you to go up there, but... I'll uh... be completely responsible. Very well, sir. Here's the key you'll need. Thank you. Shall we? Terribly kind to me, Johnny. Don't you think you've deserved it, Lorelai? And Betty. Such a wonderful girl. She's been a wonderful comfort. Mm, I thought you two would get along. If you and, and Betty ever get married, I can only hope you'll be as happy. As happy as Timothy and I were before. The... <laughs> you sure you don't mind us coming back here this way? No. Anything I can possibly do to help, Johnny. You know that. I wish to heaven I knew what kind of help I need. Well, maybe if we just talk about most anything. Uh, you up at Cape Ann, you said, hmm? Yes, sir. Sketching. Oh, it's a mighty beautiful country up there, isn't it? I've never seen it before. Only heard about it. It is beautiful. I hope I can go back again sometime and sketch and paint some more. If only Timothy had gone along with me. Yeah, this, this whole thing might not have happened. 
Yeah, but, but he knew the salt air wouldn't agree with him. So, Do you suppose, Johnny, that it would be all right if I took some of my clothes and things as long as I'm here? I'm afraid you'd better not, Lorelei. The sergeant wants to come back here, you know. Oh, yes, I... I vaguely remember him saying that. I'm afraid I wasn't aware of much that, that day. I don't blame you. Lorelai. What, Johnny? It's kind of a strange name for a nice, gentle person like you. Is it? Why? Weren't the legendary Lorelai the, the sirens who enticed men to their destruction? Good heavens, Johnny. Oh, I'm sorry. Tell me, did you make any sketches up there, Cape Ann? Well, yes. Lots of them. Would you like to see some of them? Very much. I know that place pretty well. When... Here they are. Right here in, in this portfolio. Oh, you leave your masterpieces lying around here in the front hall? Oh, I wish they were masterpieces. Here, now, you recognize this? Oh, sure, sure. That's the big bay on the west side of the Cape. Uh-huh. And surely you've seen this, the, the Bernie Cottage? <laughs> oh, yes. And the two windows in front that look like eyes and the <laughs> white chimneys that look like ears sticking up. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's wonderfully quaint, isn't it? And it does look like a bunny, a big white bunny. <laughs> and you were never up there before. Oh, no, never. But I'll go again. Oh, no, Lorelei, I'm afraid not. What? Lorelei. Lorelei, destroyer of men. It's a fact, isn't it? But Johnny, what makes you say a thing like that? You were the one person to benefit by your husband's death. Johnny. And the one person who could get in here with your own key in that back door without being seen by one of those doormen came in by the back way and killed him. Johnny, please, you, you don't know what you're saying. How you found out I was coming to make such a nice alibi for you, I don't know. Maybe you overheard him on the phone just before you killed him. Now, please listen to me. Don't, don't talk this way. Then you left by the back door again. You waited when you saw me arrive, came in after me, this time by the front door. Johnny, Johnny, no, I told you. You know it. I just come back from Cape Anne. You know that. You helped me with my luggage. I helped you with a suitcase and an attaché case. You were not carrying this portfolio for the sketches you made at Cape Ann. In other words, you had to have been in here before. Well? No, no. I tell you... All right. Listen. Listen to me carefully, Johnny. Yes. Yes, I did kill him. I killed him. Because he was an egotistical, self-centered, crazy old man. Because of the money. Millions, Johnny. Millions of dollars. To play with. To have fun with. Enjoy life. Listen, Johnny. You and I, with all that wonderful money. Just the two of us, Johnny. Nice try, Lorelai. But not this time. Oh, why do they do it? Why don't they learn? Don't they know it won't work? That sooner or later they're bound to be found out. And why a lovely little thing like Lorelai? Lorelai, destroyer of men. Expense account total? Oh, who wants it? Who wants anything out of a case like this? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, is written by Jack Johnstone. Produced and directed by Bruno Zerato Jr. Musical supervision by Ethel Huber. Johnny Dollar is played by Mandel Kramer. Also featured in our cast were Rita Lloyd as Lorelei, Sam Gray as Sergeant Barney Foster, Herb Duncan as Ed Williams, Arthur Cole as Timothy Jared, and Guy Rep as the Dorman. Be sure to join us next week, same time, same station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Art Hannah speaking. Johnny Dollar has come to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Now, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but the actress who played Lorelai, I can imagine she had a very interesting acting career because her accent kept slipping. I mean, she went from an African French to a European French to an English. I mean, I don't know. But anyway, uh, we've got a sort of a treat for you. Well, it's a treat for me. I don't know how you feel about it. But back when I had sight, I was an avid comic book collector. In fact, most of my comics are still downstairs, housed in their, uh, in my little black, well, it's not black, it's a baby blue uh, box that my grandfather made me. It's huge. But anyway, I've got over a thousand, thousands of comics, and... Um, this is kind of a treat for me because, well, I can't say I love Superman, but I enjoy his comics, especially the new Superman. Not so much the classic stuff. Now, that's what we have today, The Adventures of Superman. Now, The Adventures of Superman was a comic book series that debuted in Action Comics in 1938. About a year later, they included the Superman comic in newspapers and added a Superman uh, comic strip. In addition to that, they also created four episodes which radio episodes, that is, which they could shop around for to various uh, networks to see who would pick it up. Well, two year, less than two years later, the New York City's WOR station picked it up, and it gave a whole new dimension to the comic book character because it was suddenly a flesh a real life flesh being a person who was actually speaking and performing all these great crime fighting techniques in fact they came up with superman's tagline the quest for truth and justice based on the World War II propaganda days. And 
they tagged it onto Superman so he could be featured that way. Now, there were about 2,088 episodes created for The Adventures of Superman. And this is where I bring you good news and bad news. The bad news is that all of these episodes are part of multi-part episodes. In other words, back when it first debuted, back in 1940, it started off as a kid's serial. Well, it is a kid's serial way back when, but it started off three, three times a night for five nights a week. And eventually it moved to two nights a week and then one large 30-minute episodes. But the ones we have were back when they started three nights a week. And unfortunately, Pepsi Mama didn't realize before I actually told her uh, that these were multi-parts and she couldn't broadcast them until she got the other parts. Otherwise, it isn't a complete story. Now, you can understand why she wouldn't broadcast it. But my feeling is, and this is where the good news comes in, any Superman is better than no Superman. So, I now bring you four episodes of The Adventures of Superman. And again, they are parts of a larger, well, arc of shows. You have to remember, this is a serial. And it was originally broadcast to get people into the comic book and the comic strip to bring readers in. And it certainly did that. I mean, the merchandising alone was worth trillions. And no, I'm not exaggerating. The Superman franchise has been worth trillions of dollars since 1938. And you have to bear with me because I love these episodes and I love listening to anything Superman. And that's where we start tonight. The first episode we have is called Dr. Cameron's Helicopter. And uh, enjoy. and a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look! Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Yes, it's Superman, strange visitor from another world who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. But before we join Superman, here is an important message. 
Gang, this morning I happened to drop in on my pal Jerry Link when he was holding a meeting of his aviation club. And I certainly was surprised at what I learned. Hey, please, 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 please. Listen, everybody, I've got an important sure. announcement to make. Could you add bring your model planes with you? Sure, I've got a idea. Well, we've got a big project to get done. It asked us to make a complete collection of submission forms a week from today. Oh, Gee, that's keen. I got four already, and my mother went down to the store to get some more packages of pets this morning. I wonder what I'll get in those. I'll take with you, Sam. You just got two of a kind. Hey, wait a minute, fellas. First of all, how many points has everybody got? Tommy? I got four. Pete? Well, counting the one I got this morning, I've got five. I haven't had time to cut the last one out and put it together. Well, I've got five, too. Tell you what, let's all go down to the store and see if we can get a for at least one squadron by next week, okay? Yes, gang, that's what I learned at Jerry Link's Aviation Club meeting this morning. Now, how are you coming with your own private collection? Have you got enough free planes for a squadron yet? Well, don't forget that there's another free plane in every single package of pets. So keep on treating yourself to crisp, delicious pep for breakfast. You have a swell collection of free jets. And remember, gang, when you are than just a grand-tasting breakfast serving, you're getting more vitamin D than in any other flake cereal you can buy. For a package of those delicious, and remember the name now, Pea. Pep is made Michigan. And now the adventure. Well, as usual, editor pen Dr. Leander Cameron has... But this time, it's serious from newly invented helicopter and folded up to the size of a suitcase. A clever, unscrupulous, fearful as the deadly vengeance and back to Cameron are moving heaven and earth to locate the vast expanse of the country from descriptions of the vulture are pouring into the offices of law enforcement agencies. Reporters, urgent pen interval. Police 3 b Known as the vulture, height 5 feet 10, 53 pounds, hair gray, black, disguise, report whereabouts at once, repeating, be on lookout as the vulture. Over and over again, the word of a man known as the vulture. In every city and hamlet, at every crossroad from Maine to California, the greatest manhunt in the history of crime is now going on. But even that fails to satisfy Perry White. Editor of the Daily Planet and Dr. Leander Cameron's close friend. We find him in his office talking on the phone with Police Inspector Henderson. Do I have to tell you, Henderson, that no effort is too great? Yes, 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 I know you're sending alarms out every 15 minutes. I know you drag into the country, but that's not enough. we got to do more than that. I'm going to hire every private detective in Metropolis. I'm going to find the vulture if it takes every cent that I've got. Yes, goodbye. But Clark Kent isn't wasting precious minutes. Unknown to Editor White or to anyone, he has stripped off the street clothes of the meek, unassuming reporter, and in the red cape and blue costume of Superman, he is moving swiftly about the city, visiting the dark, dingy hangouts of underworld characters, searching for a clue that might lead him to the whereabouts of the vulture. Open up in there. Never mind that. Open up or I'll break the door. What's the big idea? Who are you? But you are in a custom place. Stand back. 
Hey, wait a minute, Bud. You can't come in here. Sorry, but I am in. You're Blackie Minetta, aren't you? Yeah, but... Just answer my question. Where's the vulture? Who? You heard me, the vulture. I don't know who you're talking about. You're lying in your teeth, Blackie. You worked for the vulture at one time. Where is he now? Hey, who do you think you're talking to? Don't bother reaching for that gun, Blackie. Oh, no. I said don't bother. Hey, my God. What happened to it? Right here in my hand, Blackie. Just to make certain you don't hurt yourself with it, I'll twist it out of shape and toss it into the corner. Oh. Oh. No, I ain't saying right. I'm going there. It's that stuff I've been drinking. Oh, it's not that stuff you've been drinking, Blackie. You're seeing right. You saw what I did to that gun, didn't you? Well, I can do the same thing to your head. Only it'll... I've been going straight. Honest, honest, I have. I'm not interested in whether you've been going straight or not. There's only one thing I want to know. Where's the vulture? I don't know. I already was in stud doing time. You didn't know he escaped yesterday? Escaped? Yes. No, honest, I didn't. Where would the vulture go after breaking out of prison, Blackie? Search me, mister. Unless he ain't got no right to tell you. It's squealing right. Take a look at that twisted revolver, Blackie. Then think of your head. What would you rather do? Squeal or... Okay. Okay, I'll tell you. The only place I know he might be is at Mrs. Gorse. Who's that? Her name's Mrs. Gorse. She's a tall, skinny dame. Used to help the vulture with some of the seals. Kind of old, me. Where does she live? In a rooming house at 432 Crandall Street. Hey, hey, the door's over this way, mister. I think the window will be more convenient, Blackie, once we get it open. What are you going to do now? Just say goodbye and leap out the window. So long, Blackie. Up and away! Mrs. Gaunt, 432 Crandall Street, eh? Well, it sounds like it might be a good lead. Well, it sounds like it might be a good lead. Ah, it's Crandall Street right below me. I think I'd better make this call as Clark Kent. The thing is a dim out. Streets are dark and deserted. Down, down, down. Now to get back into Kent's clothes. Now, put these horn rimmed glasses on. And change my voice. There, guess that does it. Once more, the meek reporter sallies forth in search of news. Up these steps. Should be a bell somewhere. Oh, yes, here it is. This is gone, eh? Huh? I'd expect the vulture to know a woman with a name like that. This is gone. Uh-oh, there's a light going on in the hall. Someone's coming. Yes? And what can I be doing for you? Oh, I'm sorry to bother you, madam, but I'm looking for Mrs. Gaunt. <laughs> no more than I am, young fella. Skipped off owing me three weeks' rent, it is. When was this? Yesterday afternoon. Snakes out, bag and baggage, the skinny old witch. Well, maybe it's best to see the last of her. She was a weird one, you can take it from me. Good riddance to bad rubbish, I say. Uh, you wouldn't be looking for a room now, would you? Hmm? Oh, no, 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 thank you. Uh, did Mrs. Gaunt... Notice it. If she had, I'd be up to having a lawn, or believe me. Well, thank you for saying. Don't mention it. And although it's none of me business, and maybe I'm sticking my nose in where I don't belong, I hardly think a nice-looking young fellow like you should be after taking the company of the likes of Mrs. Gaunt. I remember that. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Well, like the end of the trail. No forwarding address. Bet she's with the vulture. Where? No, I think I'll drop in a police headquarters and see whether they picked up any leads. Nothing else to do now. Walking briskly down Crandall Street, Ken turns left toward the center of the city and police headquarters, unaware that the very people he is looking for, the vulture, Mrs. Gaunt, and Dr. Leander Cameron, are actually in the sumptuous penthouse drawing room of the very apartment house he is now passing. Dr. Cameron, 
is cringing in his chair, his eyes bright with terror. Is it gone to face a white, expressionless mass guards the heavy oak door, her arms folded across her chest. The vulture is standing at a table on which has been set a screened wooden box. In the box, coiled on a bed of straw, are two beady-eyed rattlesnakes. The vulture speaks. It was fortunate that you happened to inform me that your one fear is a pair of snakes, Dr. Cameron. No, no, please. I beg of you, take them away. I'm fortunate, too, that I happen to have on hand two full-grown rattlers. You see, I use them to extract. It comes in very handy at times. It's a subtle and not easily traced poison. Subtle and not easily traced poison. Lovely rattlesnakes. Unsay, Dr. Cameron. Please, if you have any decent care, dog, take them away. They horrify me. Do they really? They horrify me. say if I open the box, I'll have them a little freedom. It would kill me. I swear to you, I would die of shock. Then perhaps you'll change your mind about writing that little note to your friend, Editor Perry White. No, no, I can't do that. I can't lure Perry and Kent and the rest of them into your clutches. I can't. I won't. I can't. Perhaps my little pet here can convince you, Dr. Cameron. Shall we see what happens when I open the box? Reaching for the cover of the snake box, the vulture raises it slowly. What will happen? In just a moment, we'll return to the thrilling climax of this episode, but first, here's another important message. Gang, wouldn't it be fun to be a real plane pilot and handle a Drummond Wildcat or a P-40 Tomahawk or maybe even a P-47 Thunderbolt, one of the most powerful planes in the whole world? I'll bet it would. Of course, it's a little early for you actually to learn to fly one of those great fighting planes, but here's an easy way to learn how to spot them. From the wonderful free model plane you get in every single package of Kellogg's Pet. Yes, gang, right inside every pet package is an accurate scale model of one of the great fighting planes of America and her allies. All cut out and put together. Gang, this plane is absolutely free. You don't have to send in a single penny or any box tops either. Start now collecting your own squadron of free model planes. And remember... Remember... And now, back to the adventures of Superman. The scene is the same. The vulture has reached out and is slowly opening the cover of the box containing the two deadly rattles. One of the coiled reptiles raises its flat head and is about to slide out. The Dr. Cameron, horrified, cry, nice to the room. No, no, call him back. Will you write the letter to Petty White? Yes, yes, I'll do it. Give him the fountain pen and paper, Mr. Dawson. Give him the fountain pen and paper, Mr. Dawson. Thank you. Now, Dr. Cameron. Now, Dr. Cameron. Right. As I dictated. Dear Petty. I am safe and well. Oh, my. Unfortunately, I could not contact you. I could not contact you. But I should like you. I should like you. Kent. Miss Wayne. And the awesome boy to meet me as soon as possible. In the penthouse apartment. My friend David Reed My friend David at 220 at 220 Jerry Drive 
I have something very interesting to show you. To show you. So please come as soon as... Forced by his deathly fear of snakes to write a note that will lure his friends into the vulture's trap, Dr. Cameron is helpless. Will Perry White and Clark Kent fall for the vulture's trick? Well, you'll be surprised at what happens, so don't miss tomorrow's episode, same time, same station. Tune in and follow the adventures of Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in Superman DC publication. This is Mutual. You know, it's a shame these episodes are so old because they come out so badly recorded. I have not been able to find a better quality of that episode. I've never, I haven't been able to clean it up to my satisfaction. So that's all you have. Anyway, the next episode we have is called The Lair of the Dragon. So, enjoy this one. Perhaps the sound quality will be better. The Super Delicious Serial presents The Adventures of Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman! Yes, it's Superman, who is today completely mystified by the strange attack that seized Jimmy Olsen and Tony Sloan at the lair of the dragon. We'll take you to the scene in a moment, but right now, here's Dan McCullough with an important V-Day reminder for you. Say, gang, I guess you're just about as excited as I am today at the good news. It is swell, isn't it? Yes, this is a day that we've all been waiting for and working for. And what a day it'll be when the war in the Pacific is over, too. And you know, you fellows and girls can help make that day come sooner. Sure. Keep right on buying war stamps. Lots of them. Keep on collecting every bit of waste paper. Save scrap metal. Keep on doing the splendid work you have been doing right along. Remind your friends and your neighbors that they must continue to save every bit of used fat and turn it in. And you girls can help Mother with the mending, too. It's important to make things over and make them last as long as possible. In fact, there are countless ways in which you can help. And believe me, those boys in Europe really appreciate all that you fellows and girls have done, and the boys in the Pacific are counting on you to go on doing the same thing for them, too. So, gang, the harder we all work, the sooner all our boys will get back home. And then we can really celebrate. And now... The Adventures of Superman. Unaware that Jimmy Olsen had been trapped by the dragon, a mysterious Japanese whom Clark Kent believed was responsible for the disappearance of Tony Sloan, a Daily Planet war correspondent, Kent permitted himself to be captured by a henchman of the dragon. Taken to a house in San Francisco, Kent found Jimmy and Tony in the custody of the hooded Jap, who told the three planet reporters that they were about to die in the same strange way in which the Nip planned to eliminate our armed forces. Left in a locked room with Kent, Tony and Jimmy suddenly declared that the flowers in the wallpaper were leaping out at them. And a moment later, they lost consciousness. As we continue now, Kent, puzzled and alarmed, has resumed his true identity of Superman. Listen. 
can't understand it. Something strange in this room, and I don't know what it is. I've got to get Jim and Tony out of here in a hurry. Up with them. There we are. Now, out through that boarded window. Away! Pulses are very low. They're gasping for breath. Down to that park. Down! There we are. Now, to get these wire bonds off them. And then some quick artificial respiration. Let's see now. Out goes the bad air. In comes the good. Out. Snapping the wires from the arms of Jimmy and Tony, the man of steel kneels over them, working their arms and forcing air into their gasping lungs. After several anxious minutes... Uh, where? Oh, what? Jim's coming around. Uh, Tony's still out, though. What, what happened? You're all right, Jim. I fancy to bring Tony, too. Oh, no. Oh, he's yeah. there. Now he's coming around. Uh, the moment is so, and he ought to be okay. The, the flowers. Yes. Jim. Everything's all right, Tony. I, I... Leaping lizard. Superman. That's right, Jim. Feel all right now? I... I... Sure. Mr. Kent, Tony, look, it's Superman. Superman? Are you really Superman? Yes, I Mr. am. Mr. Kent. Where's Mr. Kent? Kent's all right. But, but where is he? He was in that room with us. I know. That's right. The word, Kent. He's all right, I tell you. Now, look, you fellas stay here and rest. I'm going back to that house for the dragon. Up and away! There we are. There's the house. I don't see the dragon, though. Well, I'll just go down there. Great Scott. The whole house blew up. There's not a stick of it left. Shocked by what he has just witnessed. Superman hovers above the great gaping hole in the earth where, but a moment before, the dragon's house had stood. Then, after a quick search of the neighborhood, he drops to earth. A few minutes later, once more in his guise of reporter Clark Kent, he enters the glade in the park where Jimmy Olsen and Tony Sloan have just risen unsteadily to their feet. Yeah, I wonder what that explosion was. Well, it sounded like a, a bomb or something. It wasn't a bomb, Jim. Well, then what? Mr. Kent. Kent. What happened to you? Well, I was just Superman told... said you were okay, but when you didn't show up, we got worried. Yeah, we were just going to look, look for you. Well, I went to look for the dragon, but I was too late. Too late? Uh-huh. Afraid he got away. I reached his house just as it blew up. That was the explosion you heard. Wow. wow. I don't know how it happened. There's nothing left there now except a huge hole in the ground. Holy mackerel. Do you, do you think the dragon was blown up? No, no, Jim. I'm pretty sure he wasn't. Well, what makes you say that, Kent? If the whole house is blown well, up. I was right above... Uh, uh, right outside the house, just before the explosion, and I'm reasonably certain the dragon wasn't in it. But you couldn't see in the house, Mr. Kent. Maybe he was... Just the same. I'm almost positive he got away, Jim. I... Well, that is, Superman scoured the neighborhood, but couldn't find a trace of him or his gang. The police are searching now. Wish I knew what caused that terrific explosion. Oh, maybe the dragon had dynamite planted in the basement, so when he makes a getaway, he can wash out all evidence. Well, that's what I thought at first, but... Enough dynamite to blow the whole house and foundation out of the ground to not leave a single brick or stone standing would have to be planted in more than one place. And that would have caused more than one explosion. Yeah, that's right, Clark. I only heard one, though. Yes, so did I. There was only one. I can't figure it out. And another thing that bothers me are those those strange symptoms you fellows had before you lost consciousness. Thinking the, the, the flowers and the wallpaper were jumping out at you and, and, and not being able to breathe. 
I don't understand that either. Great humor. I forgot about that. What? What? Why, of course. Huh? Of course what, Tony? What happened to us in that room and the house blowing up so mysteriously? That was all done by the dragon's secret weapon. His what? His secret weapon. The one I was tracing all over the South Pacific until I was wounded. Oh. Hey, look, Kent. Don't you remember what the dragon said? That Japan would destroy our troops in the same way that he was knocking us off? Well, yes, but well, what's that? See? That's how he plans to do it. With the secret weapon he used on us today. Unless we find out what that weapon is and learn how to deal with it, well, it will cause a lot of grief and maybe cost a lot of lives. Jeepers. But oh, just a minute, help. Jim. Look, Tony, I think you better tell us all you know and quick. Okay. Uh, come over to that bench. Sure. My bum leg won't hold me up anymore. Oh, here, wait a minute. Let me help you. There you are. Hey. See, if only I hadn't been wounded and nothing had happened to Sing Song, I might have had all the answers by now. What answers? And what Sing Song? I'll tell you in a minute. Yeah. All right, better on this bench. I can talk now. Well, start talking, Tony. What about the secret weapon? How'd you disappear from that hospital ship? And what about those air squadron buttons? Easy, Jim, easy. Let him catch his breath. Oh, I'm all right now. You say the police are after the dragon tent? Yeah. Let's hope they have better luck finding him than I did. Oh, they've got to find him. He... Oh, but i got to tell you about this so you can help me. I guess I'd better start from the beginning. Uh-huh. Well, it began when General MacArthur decided we were ready to take back the Philippines. The big bombers started what they called their milk runs then to soften up Luzon. And I went along on a couple of the flights as correspondent. On my second flight, we caught a lot of flack and one of our motors went out. Uh-huh. We were limping back home as best we could when about a dozen Jap Zeros jumped us. Jeepers. Yeah. Our gunners knocked down four of them, and the others turned to run. All but one devil who decided to win his way into Jap heaven by coming at us head on. Wow. Yeah. He managed to shear off a wing, and, well, some of us were lucky enough to be able to bail out. I was one of them. Boy, what a Well, what happened then, Tony? Well, we landed in the sea. When the other Japs saw what had happened, they came back to straight us. Dirty rat. Just like them. Yeah, you said it. I didn't inflate my life raft until they were gone, so they missed me. Good. Then I set up the raft, climbed in, and was so exhausted, I fell asleep. When I woke up, I was just off the tiniest island you ever saw. What do you mean? Well, it was about the size of a small backyard and had just one studded tree on it. What? And sitting by the tree, with his head bowed, was a native. Oh, just him alone on that little island? That's right, Jim. I called to him, but he wouldn't look up. So I paddled ashore and called to him again, but still he wouldn't look up. First I thought he was dead, but when I walked over to examine him, his eyes opened and he looked up at me. He was a fine-looking native, about 25. But in all my life, I've never seen such suffering etched in a man's face. I've seen lots of war. Golly, who was he, Tony? He was the only man in the world, except for Hirohito's war cabinet, who knew of the existence of the dragon's secret weapon. The weapon with which the Japs like to think they'll win the war. God. Well, how, how did he know? He was the only man in the world, other than the Japs, who had witnessed a demonstration of the dragon's amazing weapon and lit the telebot. Jeep. Well, what is it, Tony? Well, I'm coming to it, Clark. Naturally, I asked him who he was and what he was doing all alone in this tiny island that didn't even have a hut on it. He had a long native name I couldn't pronounce, but it sounded something like Sing Song, so I called him that. The uh, first thing he told me, I didn't want to believe. But later, when I looked at my maps, I found he was telling the truth. He started his strange story a few days ago. This was a large island. Trees 
flowers, much fruit and vegetable grow. Much fish in sea. Also pretty. 3,000 people live here. Also happy people. 3,000 people? Are you kidding, Sing Song? What you say, Tony Snow? I say, you don't expect me to believe that, do you? You must believe. I tell truth. Oh, yeah? Well, this was a large island with 3,000 people on it. What happened to the land and to the people? I tell. Two days ago, warship come here. Small yellow-skinned men come off boat with guns. Leader say, we Japanese own whole world pretty soon. We're headman. Japs, huh? Yes. Headman, my father. Mm-hmm. He say, what you do here with guns? Jap leader say, we come do you great honor. We make experiments here with great new weapons. If works, all of you die for emperor, go to honorable Japanese heaven. Then we kill all Yankee dogs and own whole world. Why that dirty? What do you mean? My father, he asks that. He say, we happy people here. We not wish to die for your emperor. Then Jap leader say, insolent dog, shoot him. Then they shoot my father. Many of us try to stop them. They laugh and kill, shoot some, hit someone's head with guns. Many people run away and hide. We peaceful people. We no have guns. We no fight back. Yeah. Well, what happened then? Jap leader and six others climb an old dead volcano. Jap leader throw many little pieces colored paper in there. He hollered, blessing on my noble cousin, son of heaven. Pretty soon, they come down again. Jap leader said to me and brothers, in one hour, everyone on this island die for noble emperor. Then they all go back to worship, sail away. Dirty Jap rat. Yeah. You've heard nothing yet. Get this. We're listening. You bet we are. Go ahead, Tony. One hour later, the entire island and everyone on it was wiped out. What? The Jap ship bombed them? No, there wasn't a single shell fired at them, Kent. Oh, then planes came over and bombed them. No, not a single plane came over either. Then, then how... Wait a minute, wait a minute, I've got it. That volcano. <laughs> the volcano didn't erupt either as fast as you were going to take, Ken. That's what I thought. It had been inactive for centuries. Oh. But one hour after the Japs left, everyone on the island began to see the trees and flowers leaping out of the ground at them. What? Yeah, just like Jimmy and I did in the dragon's place. And almost immediately after that, everyone except Sing Song was dead. Incredulously, Clark, Kent, and Jimmy Olsen stare at Tony Sloan, not knowing whether to believe or disbelieve his shocking story. Don't fail to listen in tomorrow when Tony retells the rest of his amazing experience, which includes more dramatic surprises. So tune in, same time, same station, and follow The Adventures of Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet... More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Fellows and girls, be sure to follow the adventures of Superman. Brought to you every day, Monday through Friday. Same time, same station. By the makers of that super delicious cereal, Kellogg's Pep. Superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in Superman DC Publications.
And that's another episode. Now we bring you the boy king of Moravia. This one is supposed to be good. And again, the quality of that episode was a lot better than the first one. But we'll see if it continues. Here you go. The boy king of Moravia. Pep, the super delicious cereal presents the adventures of Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman, who is today making every effort to locate Jimmy Olsen, little realizing that he has fallen into the hands of the ruthless enemies of the Boy King. We'll learn more about it in a moment. But right now, Dan McCullough wants to have a word with you. Go ahead, Dan. Say, gang, wouldn't you like to have your own private communication system that you could set up between your own room and your brother's or your sister's room and hold private conversations any time of the day or night? Why, of course you would. And, gang, now's your chance to get one. For a short time only, the Kellogg Company, makers of that super delicious cereal, Kellogg's Pep, are offering you a wonderful cardboard model walkie-talkie that really works. This exciting model walkie-talkie is patterned after the one our fighting men use in action, and the things you can do with it are really amazing. Now, this Kellogg model walkie-talkie comes all ready to put together with full instructions printed on the mailing envelope. With it, you get two areas sticks, a tuning-in dial, and a receiver transmitter, along with 48 feet of communication line. Think of that, gang. This means that once your Kellogg walkie-talkie is properly set up, you can give the receiver transmitter to a pal, and both of you can talk and listen from 48 feet away. That's quite a distance, gang. That's as far as from one room to another, or almost clear across the schoolyard. Now, here's how you get your Kellogg model walkie-talkie. Send two pep box tops and 10 cents in cash, along with your name and address clearly printed, to Superman, Box 80, Battle Creek, Michigan. That's two pep box tops and 10 cents in cash, along with your name and address clearly printed, to Superman, Box 80, Battle Creek, Michigan. Now, you probably have one open package of pep at home, so ask your mother to get you another so that you can send in the two box tops with your dime right away. But hurry, gang, this offer is good for only a short time. And now, the adventures of Superman. On the trail of what he thought might be an ordinary newspaper story, Jimmy Olsen found himself involved in a vast international plot to force the boy king of Morania to sign away his right to the throne. Yesterday, as you remember, Count Monak, leader of the faction sympathetic to the Nazis, the faction attempting to gain control of Morania because of its valuable oil fields, had abducted Jimmy and the boy king in the hope of forcing the young ruler to sign papers of abdication. But on Jimmy's advice, he refused. As we join them now, Count Monek, furious at Jimmy's interference, screams... I have heard enough of this stupid talk. Pablo! Yeah, Count Monek. Take him out of here and get rid of him. Permanently. It will be a pleasure. That's what you think. Keep away, muttonhead, or I'll bust you one on the snoot. Well, what are you waiting for, Pablo? Get him out of here. Yeah, yeah, come. Let go of me. Let go of me. Let go Lift him off his Take feet. Up. Carry him to the door. Yeah, yeah. Put me down, you big ox. Put me down. Wait. Wait, I'll sign the paper. Pablo, put him down. Quick. Here is the pen, Your Majesty. Hold it, Chuck. Don't be a dope. Don't sign it. But if I don't, he'll kill you. Never mind about me. These guys are crooks. They're crooks and Nazi lovers. Silence, you young fool. Nuts to you. Pablo. Wait. Uh, wait, Carmanic. What is it? I... I'll sign the paper if, if you'll give me five more minutes with my friend so 
so that I can talk to him. I have already given you time enough. Just five more minutes, please. Very well. But this is your last chance. Come, Pablo. You'll be waiting outside the door. What'd you do that for, Chuck? Jim, please, you've got to listen to me. You've got to understand about all this. I understand. I understand plenty. These rats are trying to take over your country so they can give it to the Nazis. But, Jim, it isn't my country, really. This is my country, the United States. What are you talking about? You're king of Morania, aren't you? Well, that's what they all say, but I... Either I'm... you are or you aren't. And if you are, then you've got no right to turn it over to a gang of crooks. But they'll kill you if I don't. Oh, that's a lot of hogwash. They're not killing me so fast. Now, Chuck, set me straight on something. Who's the guy that found you and wants to take you back to Morania? The guy you were going into Metropolis to meet? The ambassador, Dr. Traeger. Well, is he a good guy? Oh, yeah, sure. The reason he wants me to go back to Morania is because he wants to make a republic out of it, just like here. He said if I did that, then I could come back if I wanted to. Oh, I get it now. This guy, Manic doesn't want a republic. He wants to put someone else in as king, right? Yeah. My cousin, Dr. Traeger, said. He's a friend of Hitler's. And you want to sign that paper and let your cousin turn the country over to the Nazis? What else can I do, Jim? we got to get out of here. got to get to Metropolis somehow. You can't sign that paper, Chuck. Because if you do, you'll be sabotaging the Allies. But if I don't, they'll... If you say they'll kill me once more, you're going to get crowned. Not like a king. All I'm trying to do, Jim, is protect you. Well, stop protecting me. I can take care of myself. Now, look. We've got to figure something out. Got to use our heads. There's only two of them. Monica and that, that mush-mouthed Pavlov. Two of us, too. Two against two is not so bad. But they're bigger than we are. And maybe they even have guns. Well, that's why I say we got to use our heads. You remember what Abraham Lincoln or Horace Greeley or one of those smart guys said? The pen is mightier than the sword. Yeah, but in this case... Hey, it's... hey wait a minute. The pen... The fountain pen. What fountain pen? The one Nana handed you when he wanted you to sign that paper. What about it? I got it, Chuck. I got it all figured out. We're going to show them that the pen is mightier than the sword. Wait, I don't understand, Jim. Oh, you just listen and I'll explain everything. But we got to hurry. The time's almost up. Okay, shoot. Oh, here's the setup. When Nana comes back, tell him you decided to sign the paper. But if I do... Listen to me and don't interrupt. You haven't much time. When he hands you the fountain pen, make like you're going to sign your name. But instead, flip up the little lever. You know, the lever on the side of the pen that you used to fill it? And squirt the ink right in his face. Gosh. The minute you do that, I'll make a dive for Pavlov. I'll hit him with a flying tackle and knock him down. In the meantime, you head for the door while Manic is still floundering around with the ink all over his ugly puss. And I'll follow you. But, but where'll we go? Golly. Well, this is a warehouse. There must be a door or something that leads to the street. Do you remember how we came in? No, it was so dark I couldn't see. Well, never mind. We'll find a way out. Now, Chuck, have you got everything straight? Yeah. I hope it works. Golly, it's got to work, Chuck. It's our only chance. I... I'm shaking like a leaf. Take it easy. Now, don't let on we got something cooked up. Uh, I'll try not to. You all set? Yeah. I guess so. Okay. Call Manic in. Drawing a deep breath. The frightened youngster who has suddenly become the key figure of an international plot to turn over a precious supply of oil to the crumbling Nazi empire prepares to follow out Jimmy's hastily conceived plan. Meanwhile, not many miles away in Perry White's private office at the Daily Planet, 
Clark Kent and Lois Lane are conversing softly as the gray-haired editor talks over the phone. Yes, that's right. The train was due in at Metropolis at 4.50. I'm blaming myself, Clark, for letting Jimmy go into that private car alone. Yes, I'll wait. Take your time. You couldn't possibly imagine anything like this was going to happen. It really is fantastic. With most of the civilized world fighting for democracy, someone finds a boy king living in the heart of democracy's birthplace. Fine, fine. Okay. Yes, take this down. Okay, right, Chief. The private car was engaged by Dr. Nicholas Treger. Can you spell that last name, please? T-R-E-G-O-R. Yeah, I've got it. Well, do you know where he can be reached? Oh, the Moranian consulate, huh? Yeah, I see. He's the ambassador. Uh-huh. Well, thanks a lot, Mr. Wilkins. I won't forget this. Goodbye, sir. Oh, that's it, huh? A private car was engaged by Dr. Nicholas Tregor, the Moranian ambassador, and he can be reached at the consulate. Is that right? Right. Now what? Call the consulate. At this hour of the morning? What time is it? Ten minutes to six. Now, what difference does the time make? This may be a matter of life or death. Give me that phone. Now, Lois, don't go off the handle. Well, the chief's right, Lois. Sure, the chief's right, and you're right, and everyone else is right. No, but in the that... meantime, Jimmy may be dying somewhere. Look, now, wait a minute. I'll tell you what I'll do. Instead of calling, I'll go over to the consulate. It's just a few blocks from here on Tremont Avenue. That's fine. I'll go with you. Now, wait a minute. Nobody's leaving this office. Now, wait a minute. I chief. may need you. Then I'm going to call the consulate. Lois! Let her call, chief. She's right. It may be I'll a wait. matter of life and I'll death. Wait a... Clark Kent doesn't know how close to the truth he is. For even at this very moment, Jimmy and the boy king are about to make their desperate bid for escape. We'll return in a moment to learn what happens. But first, let's hear from our good friend. Say, gang, have you gotten your own Kellogg model walkie-talkie yet? Well, if you haven't, you better get busy right now. Here's what you do. Send two box stops from packages of Kellogg's Pep, along with the dime and your name and address clearly printed, to Superman, Box 80, Battle Creek, Michigan. If you hurry, gang, you'll be rushed a wonderful cardboard model of a walkie-talkie that really works. And believe me, you're in for plenty of fun and thrills. This Kellogg model walkie-talkie is nearly a foot high, done in regular army color, and it comes with full instructions for assembly. With it, you get two aerial sticks, a tuning-in dial, and a receiver transmitter, along with 48 feet of communication line. And gang, once you get your Kellogg walkie-talkie all set up, you can perform all kinds of amazing and impressive stunts. With somebody else operating the receiver transmitter, both of you can talk and listen almost clear across the schoolyard or down the block. Best of all, if you get your pals to send in for their Kellogg walkie-talkies too, you can hook them all together and have a wonderful private communication system that covers twice or three times the distance. But you've got to act fast now, gang. Send the two pep box stops and a dime along with your name and address Clearly printed, the Superman, Box 80, Battle Creek, Michigan. And get your pals to do the same. Remember, this amazing offer is good for only a short time. And now, back to the adventures of Superman. In the dimly lit office of a large warehouse adjoining the Metropolis waterfront, Jimmy Olsen and Chuck Barrett, the newly found boy king, are about to enact Jimmy's plan of escape. Count Monick and his bull-necked henchman Pavlov have just entered the office. The door closes behind them. Monick strides over to where Chuck is seated. I assume, Your Majesty, you have made a decision. Yes. You will sign the document? 
abdicating the throne of Morania in favor of your cousin, Prince Carl? Yes. It's a wise decision. Pablo, bring over that small table. Yeah. Here is the document, and here is a fountain pen with which to sign. You place your signature in the bottom line in the right-hand corner. Well, take the fountain pen. Go ahead, Chuck. Take it. Oh, yeah, sure. Now, sign your name. Sign it, Chuck. Sign it in his face. Pablo! Oh, no, you don't. Pablo, try this on your face. Come on, Chuck. Head for the door. Yeah. Pablo! Come on, Jim. Coming. Come back here, you. Which way now, Jim? Gosh, I don't know. It's dark as pitch out here. We'll just have to take a chance. Come on, Chuck. Follow me. Yeah. What happened, Chuck? I, I fell over a barrel. Oh, golly. Come on, get up. I, I can't, Jim. Oh, my leg. I, I think it's broken. I'll carry you. Hold still. No, no, Jim. That's that dopey. You go for help. And leave you here with those rats? It's the best way, Jim. They catch us both. We're finished. Go ahead. Get help. Please, Jim. Gee whiz. I, I don't know what to do. Torn with indecision. Jimmy hesitates in the darkness of the warehouse loft. At any moment, Count Marnik and Pavlov may come bursting out of the office. What shall he do? Stick with Chuck or try to make his way out of the warehouse and get help? It isn't an easy decision to make on the spur of the moment. And a moment is all Jim has. Gang, there's 60 seconds of excitement in every minute of tomorrow's episode. So don't miss it. Tune in tomorrow and every day, Monday through Friday, and follow the adventures of Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Fellows and girls, be sure to follow the adventures of Superman. Brought to you every day, Monday through Friday, same time, same station, by the makers of that super delicious cereal, Kellogg's Pep. Superman is a copyrighted feature, appearing in Superman DC Publications. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. I don't know if you guys know this, but in the comic books, Jimmy... Olsen had actual an actual uh, well decoder ring if you if you want to call it that and he would use it to call Superman obviously Superman wasn't that big a deal at that point but uh, eventually he does become a big deal but anyway this next episode is called the trap and I love this episode mostly because it also features uh, another superhero who's a friend of Superman's, Batman. Batman is, uh, what is his name? Uh, oh, wow, I can't remember the poor guy's name. <laughs> Bruce Wayne, that's it. <laughs> Sorry, drew a blank there. Anyway, he's in his Bruce Wayne. 
he doesn't actually come out as Batman in this episode, but he does help Superman. But you'll find out what it's about uh, now, as a matter of fact. Enjoy the trap, folks. Better than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. It's Superman, strange visitor from the planet Krypton, who came to Earth with amazing physical powers far beyond those of mortal men, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, wages a never-ending battle for truth and justice. Today, Clark Kent, gaily humming jingle bells, walks through the Daily Planet city room to Editor Perry White's office, unaware that the one man in the world who can identify him as Superman is waiting within. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Hi, Beanie. Hi, Mr. Kent. How do you like our Christmas tree? Oh, it's swell, Beanie, swell. Merry Christmas, Miss Williams. what the chief was so anxious to see me about. Stopping before Perry White's door, Kent reaches for the doorknob. In a moment, in a matter of seconds, his great secret may be revealed. The zealously guarded secret of his double identity. Take your seats, boys and girls. I'm about to give you a thrilling lecture on the ostrich. The ostrich is a bird which lives in Africa. It has a teeny little brain for its very large size, so sometimes it behaves like a fool. As Lou Lair would say, ostwitchos is the queasiest queechos. <laughs> well, listen to this. When a stranger comes near, the ostrich buries his head in the sand. He does this because he doesn't want anybody else around. And if he can't actually see them, he figures they're not there. Now, isn't that about as dumb as a living creature can possibly be? Well, maybe not. I know one thing dumber than an ostrich. A human being who falls into the same silly habits. I mean the kind of silly human bird who buries his mind in prejudice. The sort who tells himself that he's better than everybody else, especially folks who don't happen to be of his particular race or religion. What he's doing, really, is sticking his head in the sand and pretending that nobody else in the world exists. Well, that's plain nonsense. Of course other people exist, millions and millions of them, of every imaginable race and religion and background. People with many different talents, many different jobs to do. In fact, it's this wonderful variety that makes our country strong and healthy. And just because some foolish, conceited fellow refuses to look at them doesn't mean they're not there. I wish some of these human bird brains could see how comical they look, standing right out there in plain view and shutting their eyes to all the folks around them. And now, the adventures of Superman. Convinced that Clark Kent, his mild-mannered reporter, is really Superman in disguise, editor Perry White, assisted by reporter Lois Lane, perfected an elaborate scheme to prove it. By a clever ruse, White instigated a flight by Kent as Superman to an ocean liner at sea, which was supposedly in great danger. There, the captain was alerted to report the Man of Steel's arrival, which would prove he was Kent. 
But Superman chose to make his brief appearance on the ship in street clothes and was mistaken for a passenger. For the moment, White was stymied. However, the engineer of the ship had seen and spoken to Kent, who had said his name was Mr. Clark. And at this very moment, the engineer is in Perry White's office at the Daily Planet, waiting to identify Kent as the mysterious Mr. Clark. And Kent is about to walk into the trap. Summoned by White, he has just walked through the city room to his editor's office. But as he starts to open the door, a strange yet somehow familiar voice in the office reaches his ears. And never forget a face, Miss Lane. If this fellow... Quiet, is... please. Quiet, Mr. McCarthy. He'll be here any second. Startled, his hand still on the door. Kent probes the thick panels with his X-ray vision and then gasps. It's the engineer of the Atlantic Queen. If he sees me, I'm a dead duck. I've got to get out of here. And fast. Look, look, Lois. Kent isn't in his office. No, he isn't. Well, that's funny, Chief. I'll say it's funny. Uh, Beanie. Beanie Martin. Coming up, Chief. I mean, Mr. White. Well, listen, Beanie, did you... How do you like the way, Miss Lane? And I trimmed our Christmas tree. Oh, it's fine, Beanie. Uh, never mind the Christmas tree. Did you see Clark Kent? Mr. Kent? Well, sure, he was here just a minute ago. He was? Well, where is he? He went out. Out where? Where? I don't know. It wasn't feeling so good all of a sudden. What? Listen, you think we ought to put more blue lights Will on you it? forget the Christmas tree for a moment? What do you mean, Kent wasn't feeling so good all of a sudden? He was okay when he came in the city room. He was humming and wishing everybody a Merry Christmas. Yes, yes. All. Yes. But just before he got to your office, Chief, he stopped and then he came hurrying back, almost running. Oh. Uh-oh. I wanted him to help me put the star on top of the tree, but he said he wasn't feeling well. He was awful pain. I know why he wasn't feeling well. He saw Makash in my office. Huh? Now, wait, Chief, you what can't... What a chump I was. I forgot about his X-ray vision. X-ray what? Oh, oh, oh never mind, Beanie. Never mind. You get back to your Christmas tree. Okay. Now, listen, Lois, we've got to find Kent. Oh, Fat Chance. We'll find him. We've got to. You get McCosh and... Chief, use your head. If Clark is Superman and saw McCosh in your office, he realized what was up. Why, he's probably in China by now. No, he isn't. That would be a giveaway. What do you mean? He can't leave town. He'd know that we know he's afraid to face Makash, which is practically admitting that he's Superman. Oh, I see what you mean. He'll be around waiting for Makash to leave. Now, you tell Jim to stay here in case Kent calls. Okay, Chief. Then you get Makash and meet me downstairs. Right. I'll get my car. We're going out to find Mr. Kent. As White and Lois begin their pursuit of Clark Kent, the reporter has arrived at a handsome mansion facing the park where the famous Batman and his young companion Robin live between adventures as Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson. Wayne, otherwise known as Batman, is the one person to whom Superman has confessed his double identity. This is the worst jam I've ever been in, Bruce. I don't know what to do. No, take it easy, Clark. may not be as bad as you think. What, are you kidding? If I'm exposed to Superman, my value to humanity will be cut in half. The underworld will be able to keep tabs on me, trick me, perhaps even find a way of taking my life. I know. Robin and I are up against the same danger. And yet you tell me I'm not on a spot. I said it may not be as bad as you think. Oh. You may only imagine that Perry White and the others suspect who you are. I tell you, I know they do, Bruce. First, I was only suspicious. I thought I might be wrong, but now I'm sure. Why? What happened? Well, yesterday morning, White showed me a sealed envelope addressed to Superman. To Superman? Yes, we sometimes get them at the planet. Oh. White asked me if I had any idea how to contact Superman. Well, I stalled, of course, but meanwhile, I read the letter inside the envelope with my X-ray vision. Yes. I'm certain now that he intended for me to do that, and that he even wrote the letter. What did the letter say? That a time bomb had been planted in the engine room of the Atlantic Queen, which was then at sea en route to Metropolis. Uh-oh. Well, naturally, I ducked away from White and hopped out to the Atlantic Queen as Superman. Naturally. At the last moment, though, I got a little suspicious of that letter. Why? It, well, I don't know, it just didn't quite ring true. 
So I decided to appear on the ship in my street clothes, you know, as if I were one of the passengers. Well, that was cagey. What then? I went down to the engine room and dug the bomb out from behind a boiler. It was a phony. A phony? Sure, as phony as a $3 bill. So White figured you read the letter, hop out of the ship of Superman, and then it'd have you cold. Sure. But you fooled him. You didn't appear on the ship of Superman. Although, well, wait a minute. You didn't run into anyone you knew there, did you? No. But I did run into the chief engineer. Oh, so what? So at this moment, he's sitting in Perry White's office at the Daily Planet. What? Uh-huh. Dollars to donuts, White got him there to identify me as the lad who showed up on the Atlantic Queen's engine room yesterday and removed the bomb. Holy smokes. This is bad, Clark. Oh, it couldn't be any worse. Oh, I was thinking of putting a lot of mileage between me and Metropolis until Mr. Engineer goes back to sea. No, but... no, no, no. You can't do that. If you run away now, you'd practically be admitting that you're Superman. Well, that's why I didn't run. But what'll I do, Bruce? Perry White smells a terrific story, and he won't let go until he's got it. Mm, I know. The only thing to do is make him think he's wrong. Oh, wonderful. How are we going to do it? Mm, you've got to face that engineer and make him say you're not the man. But I am the man, so how oh, in heaven... let me think, let me think. There must be a way. Oh, I can't think of any. I told Beanie I was sick just now, and I ran out of the city room, but I can't keep that done. That's it, long. Clark. That's what? I've got it. Wait till I get my makeup kit. Your what? My makeup kit. Now, here it is. Now, how quickly can you get us back to your apartment? Well, in a few seconds as Superman, but why... Slip down to your costume, chum, and don't waste any time asking questions. Come on, hurry! What is Batman's plan? We'll be back in a moment to find out in the tense climax of today's episode. So keep listening. Well, fellows and girls, tomorrow's the morning for waking up bright and early, for saying Merry Christmas to all your friends and family, for finding your stockings filled with candies and finding your Christmas tree shining with tinsel and gay ornaments. It's the time for getting presents from those you love and giving presents to those you love. Well, gang, have you ever stopped to think why we give Christmas presents, why we call it Merry Christmas, why all the tinsel and ornaments and holly and pretty Christmas cards? Well, it's because for nearly 2,000 years, Christmas has always been looked upon as a time for showing goodwill towards others. As the Bible says, Christmas is a day for glory, God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So you see, that spirit has always been in the minds and hearts of people on Christmas Day. Often in the midst of wars, soldiers have stopped their fighting on Christmas Eve. And even crotchety folks like old Mr. Scrooge have suddenly felt a kindly twinge when the Christmas bells chimed up. But... Do you know something? There's no reason why the spirit of goodwill towards others should be confined to one single day, December 25th. No reason why we shouldn't try to practice it the whole year round. Why, if everybody everywhere felt and practiced enough goodwill towards others all the time, maybe we'd have real lasting peace on this earth of ours. To the adventures of Superman. In Clark Kent's apartment, Bruce Wayne, who is really Batman, is skillfully applying the contents of a theatrical makeup box to Kent's face. There, you're as pale as a ghost, Clark. Now I'll just change the shape of your nose a little with this putty. Hey, careful. Then I'll color it bright red. Now, it, it, it won't work, Bruce. Mm, you'd be surprised how different you look already. Hey, look out, my oh, I've had a lot of practice with this makeup. Yeah, but if you change me too much, Barry White will catch on. Chief is no dope, you know. I'm not changing you too much. I'm just making you look like a guy with a terrific cold. Yeah, you make oh, me... by the way, uh, can you make your voice good and hoarse? Huh? Uh, like this? Mm, that's not too good. <clears throat> How's this? Oh, a little better. 
Uh, remember to cough a lot when you speak. That'll help. Okay. Oh, brother, I still think it'd be safer for me to go to China or someplace. No, I... You can't, Clark. Oh, I'm afraid of this gag. Oh, stop worrying. It's your only chance anyway. There. I think your nose is done. Yeah, it feels awful. Oh, now, let's see. Well? Uh-uh. You still look too much like Kent. Oh, then that's that. Oh, no, 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 wait. I've got an idea. Uh, take off those horn rim glasses. Oh, no. I take them off when I'm Superman. If I take them off now, I will give myself away. Now, with your eyes all blurry and running with tears... What do you mean? Go on, take those cheaters off while I find the oh, the onion. The what? Uh, concentrated essence of that handy little vegetable known as the onion. Ah, here it is. Oh. Oh, but Bruce, I don't know if I'm subject to onion fumes. Oh, I never thought of that. Well, we'll soon find out. I'll open this bottle. Oh, no. Who is it? Perry White and the engineer of the Atlantic Queen. Don't answer. We're not ready for them yet. Open the door, Kent. This is Perry White. I know you're in there. He says he knows I'm here. This is it, then. Hop into your bedroom and pile in the bed, Clark. Here, here. Sprinkle this onion essence all over your pillow. And pray that it works on you. But, Bruce, hey, let me in. The superintendent says you're home. Oh. Coming. Get going, Clark. And remember, speak hoarsely like a frog. All right, all right. I'll try, Bruce. But something tells me my number's up. Maybe not. Just remember to talk hoarsely. Coming, I said. Oh, boy. If only this works. Come in, gentlemen. Come in. Taking a deep breath, Bruce Wayne opens the door and Perry White walks in, followed by Augustus McCosh, the engineer of the Atlantic Queen. And before Wayne can say a word, White heads for Kent's bedroom, motioning for the engineer to follow. What will happen when Augustus McCosh faces Kent? Will he identify him as the mysterious Mr. Clark and so reveal him as Superman? Be sure to hear Monday's exciting episode, fellows and girls. Tune in, same time, same station, for Chapter 6 of The Trap. On the adventures of Superman. Superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in Superman DC Comics Magazine and is brought to you Monday through Friday at this same time. was an interesting show and hell what a cliffhanger but you have to admit i did not expect the public service announcements in there because i honestly expected them to show commercials but hey you know i guess they weren't all commercial and anyway um we've come to our last show which uh pepsi mama used to call the strawberry so to speak to put on her sunday um, the Marx Brothers were one hell of a comedy team. Whether you were watching them on in the old silent movies back in the 20s or during the talkies in their heyday in the 30s, the Marx Brothers were significantly one of the first vaudeville acts to be featured on video. 
suffice it to say, the three uh, Marx brothers eventually went on to their own careers, but Groucho Marx, not so much. He was, well, he had a lull in his career in the 40s, and he appeared in a, on a Bob Hope special once, um, and uh, because of that special, he proposed a comedy show because he was really pissed off that he had to stay backstage for 40 minutes during that special. And he wanted to let them know that he wasn't so good with scripts. He was the king of ad libs. And as a result, he came up with our next show. It started in 1940 on ABC. Then eventually it moved to CBS and then eventually NBC where it finished off its run. It's one of the longest running shows. And it was the first one that could be produced at the same time as the video project. In other words, it, it broadcast on television and then on the radio. Now, there were some bad things about that because you may or as you may or may not know, Groucho Marx, his comedic style was more visual than anything else. His exaggerated walk, his facial impressions, everything. But that didn't translate so well to the radio version. So while he does come up with some pretty funny gags on television, on the radio rather, you can't really see the uh, facial features in during the radio. So either way, it was a long-running show, and uh, it turned out to be great. So now we present the strawberry for this week, which is You Bet Your Life on the Afternoon Radio Theater Sunday. Enjoy, everybody. This foot, F-O-O-T. Really? You bet your life. Belgium American, creators of America's most beautiful compact, smartest cigarette cases, finest dresser sets, present Groucho Marx in the Elgin American show, You Bet Your Life. The comedy quiz series produced and transcribed from Hollywood. And here's that sterling Elgin American, the one, the only... Is that guy still around? Oh, that's me, Groucho Marx. <laughs> Thank you. Here I am again with $2,000 for one of our couples tonight. George Fanneman has placed a try for it. We invited some movie fan club presidents and some movie fan mail clerks to the show. 
Just before we went on the air, our studio audience selected Miss Verlee Gross from Universal Pictures and Miss Barbara Ring, president of the Dana Andrews Fan Club. And here they are, ladies, meet Groucho Marx. Welcome for Elgin American Compact, girls. And if either of you say the secret word at any time we're talking, you each win a 16-millimeter Apollo Sound movie projector. It's a common word, something you always have with you. The studio mail clerk and a fan club president, me. Barbara Ring, uh, what fan club are you president of? The Dana Andrews fan club. How many members do you have? 900 nationally. Fairly gross, huh? You're the girls in the studio yes, fan mail department. Huh? About how many letters does your studio average uh, a day? Well, I would say around 3,000. Mm -hmm. Who gets the most mail? Well, we've gone to Carlo, who's appearing crisscross here. Why, why is that? Well, I think she has a certain exotic peel, appeal for men, and... Peel, uh, I think, could be closer. <laughs> <laughs> why do most people write fan letters? Well, the majority, oh, I would say about 90% of the mail we receive is asking for free pictures. Mm -hmm. And do you send out free pictures? Oh, yes. How much do you charge for free pictures? <laughs> Ten cents per dollar. Ten cents. <laughs> That's pretty cheap for a free picture. <laughs> uh, what, what other mail do you get besides the ones asking for pictures? Oh, we get proposals for marriage to the women's stars and to some of the men's stars, too. And uh, then we get letters from crackpots. Probably the best example would be the fellow who wrote in and wanted the gum that Dick Powell had chewed in a picture. <laughs> Probably a beach nut. Eh? <laughs> now, what's the oddest letter you ever got from a movie fan? Well, I think probably the woman who had seen the life of Riley, and she asked, coming out now. Huh? Mm -hmm. And she asked for uh, she asked us for William Bendix because we would send him, and she sent ten dollars to cover the charges. <laughs> And he wouldn't go? No, he, he told us to send back the $10 and send a big picture that he autographed to her personally. And then we had the, the young chap who wrote in and uh, asked for one of our stars, shall we say, unmentionable. He said that he was no. having a... Let's not say unmentionable, huh? <laughs> Lingerie? Well, yes. And he said he was collecting him. He had, it was his hobby. He had well, was he collecting him filled or empty? <laughs> The perfect gift for each of you, for Burley and for Barbara. Elgin American stunning red compact trimmed in bright jewelless bronze. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. Barbara, let's get back to your fan club. Why did you pick Dana Andrews? Why didn't you join the Groucho Marx fan club? <laughs> oh, I didn't know there was one. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a Groucho Marx. <laughs> As president of the Dana Andrews fan club, just what do you do? Well, the girls like to meet their president, and I just sit out of the meetings and pound the gavel. And then what do you do? You just sit there and pound the gavel? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound like a meeting of woodpeckers, does it? <laughs> well, how much do you know about uh, Mr. Andrews? Well, he was the third son of a minister. And his hobby is boating, and he never lets his children, he has four children, he never lets his children go on the boats because he's afraid they'll fall out. He and his wife go out boating. How do you get all this information? Oh, I read all articles that are written on him. Why do you go to all this trouble? Are you, are you actually, here's a man, a father with four children, huh? Are you trying to horn in on a territory? 
Maybe. How do you think his wife feels about this, huh? <laughs> Maybe knows. I don't know. He's out there with his wife in that rowboat. Does he always think his wife? <laughs> no. Uh, have, you, have you ever met him personally? Oh, yes. He's been introduced to me before, so I think he remembered me. I wasn't sure, though. So I just introduced myself, yeah. and he said, oh, you're the president of my fan club. And Did you have the mallet with you? <laughs> Does, does his wife belong to the club, too? Oh, yes. He's not a very member. I see. No, it's very nice. <laughs> Do any of your members collect items that your hero has touched? Well, we had one girl that, uh, she went up and asked his dog, Dana Andy, if she could have a few pieces of hair out of his head. And he, he complied. She didn't want the whole head. No. <laughs> she would have liked to have it, but she Just couldn't. some locks, huh? <laughs> she could have got that at the delegatessen. <laughs> Let her take some hair off of his head. And it, no, she just took hold of it and pulled it, it off. Well, it's that your nice way of spending the morning, huh? There's another girl that collects uh, old cigarette butts that he's thrown away. What does she do? Follow him around with a garbage can? Huh? Well, this doesn't seem like a very romantic relationship. <laughs> Collecting old cigarette butts and pulling his hair out doesn't... I wouldn't consider a very fancy romance. Well, you make a very interesting scene. Now, let's see how well you can work together for $2,000. In just one minute, you're going to play the Elgin American game you bet your life. First, George Fenneman is going to offer some invaluable advice. Go ahead, George. Have you looked at your compact lately? One look now can save your reputation in accessories. If that look shows you a compact that has seen its best days. Remember, your compact is the one accessory you use most that other people see you use. And it either adds to or subtracts from the smart impression you want to make. Compacts are such important fashion accessories today that every woman needs three, one each in the correct mood for her daytime, sports, and evening clothes. Only Elgin American offers such a thrilling variety of designs, shapes, and sizes for every apparel need. And in such a wide price range that every woman can have an Elgin American compact to reflect her good taste in glowing terms. Look at your compact tonight. And tomorrow, get the compact fashion preferred. America's number one compact. An exquisite Elgin American. Now, let's see if you two will get a chance. It's a $2,000 question. You're going to play your bet your life. Fenneman, tell them the rules. Each of our three couples has $20. They bet as much of that 20 as they want on each of four questions. The couple that earns the most money gets a chance at the $2,000 question at the end of the show. Our other two couples are in a waiting room off stage, so they won't know what goes on until it's their turn. Here we go. Let's see how high you can build your $20. What question category did you select? Comic strip characters. Comic strip characters. How much of your $20 will you bet on the first one? Ten. Okay. Mac and Mr. Simpkins are characters in what comic strip? Tilly the Toiler. Tilly the Toiler is correct. Off to a great start. They have $30. Remember, you're going for $2,000 tonight. How much of the 30 are you going to bet this time? 20 All right. In what strip do you find the little Indian lonesome polecat? Little Abner. Little Abner is correct. They now have $50. Here's your third question. How much of the 50 are you going to go for? 40 40 Doesn't get along fine. In what comic strip is Hot Shot Charlie? Hot Shot Charlie. Take a stab. Any answers better than none. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. It's Terry and the Pirates. Oh. They now have ten dollars. <laughs> Here's your last chance to beat the other couples. How much of the ten are you going to bet? Ten. Ten. All right, Alexander and Cookie are children, and what comic strip? Blondie and Daddy. Blondie is correct. And they wind up with twenty dollars. and good luck for Melton American Compact. Don't go away now. You're still in the running for the big question. And perhaps the next couple will say the secret word, Groucho. It's foot. F-O-O-T. They've been in a waiting room off stage. Okay, boys, bring them in. Just before we went on the air, our studio audience selected an airline hostess and a traveling salesman. And here they are, Miss Mary Bullock and Mr. Joe Bud Mead, Groucho Mark. Welcome for Elgin American Compact, folks. If you know about the secret word, here's a clue. It's a common word, something you have always with you. You might say it at any time we're talking. An airline hostess and a traveling salesman, eh? Miss Bullock, uh, what's your line? CWA. And salesman Joe Budd? Yes, sir. Where are you from, Mr. Budd? Georgia. What do you sell, Mr. Budd? Ophthalmological instruments and supplies. Mm -hmm. Would you mind clarifying that? Uh... <laughs> Ophthalmological instruments are instruments which are used in refracting or examining the eyes and determining the proper vision and vision of the patient. I don't let's overdo it. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Mr. Bud, uh, are you married? Yes, sir. How'd you meet your wife? Was she a farmer's daughter? <laughs> no, she wasn't a farmer's daughter, but, a, but her father was. My her father, father was a farmer? <laughs> <laughs> well, my father-in-law... That's quite a trick if you can do it, huh? <laughs> father-in-law married a farmer's daughter, huh? Your, your father-in-law married a farmer's daughter. Well, now you've got me confused, huh? <laughs> uh, stewardess uh, Mary Bullock, huh? That's correct. Uh, are you related to the uh, department store downtown? I haven't been able to trace it yet. Well, <laughs> we'll try. They'll load it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, an attractive girl like you, why, why aren't you married? Do your male passengers consider you too flighty? <laughs> <laughs> well, would you like to get married someday and settle down to us? Yes, I do. And I'm afraid I'm getting a little bit choosy now. I find one person with nice quality I like and another with nice quality, but I can't find them all in the same man. But you'll find out after you're married to one of them that none of them have all those qualities. <laughs> Could I make a reservation with you for tomorrow night? Sorry, I have a plot. You can leave your plane at home, you know. <laughs> You fly tomorrow night? With a fly-by-night outfit, huh? <laughs> you load, do you load the passengers on your ship? Yes, I do. Uh, do they ever come unloaded without you? <laughs> yes, they do. We unload them. Do any of the passengers ever try to uh, make a, a date with you? Yes, they do. And they what do you do? Sure. Go fly a kite, you tell them? <laughs> I don't think they trust me when I get on a plane. The first thing the hostess does is always strap me in the seat. <laughs> now, before we pry into any more secrets, I have a handsome cigarette case for our traveling salesman. And for our airline hostess, a smart, round, compact, both in two tones of jeweler's bronze. And here they are by Elgin American. Oh, it's lovely. I have an outfit that'll match exactly. I think any outfit you wear would make. <laughs> With that compact, you'll always be able to powder your nose at 20,000 feet, Mr. Lott. That is, if you can reach your nose at 20,000 feet. <laughs> I'll try. Let you know. 
Miss Bullock, uh, what qualifications do you need in order to become an airline hostess? Well, the age is uh, from 21 to 27 years of age, and uh, height from 5 foot 2 to 5 7. <laughs> Bullock, you said it. You said foot, and that's the secret word. So you each win an Apollo 16 millimeter sound movie projector. And not only that, but you can also walk out of here tonight with over two thousand dollars. Now let's settle down to business. Now, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mister Bud, as a traveling salesman, do you, do you ever fly? Oh, all the time. You fly all the time. Yes, sir. Could you fly around the studio? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a pretty good stock of jokes to keep your customers in a good mood? Well, we use a pair of two around. Could you give us a sample, Weez, just so we can get an idea? <laughs> I mean, let's be well, walking in the, the store now. Well, have you heard this one? Uh, well, you, you don't start off. You don't just open the door and say, have you heard this one? <laughs> Quite right. <laughs> Stop the evening for you, Dr. Marks. Have you heard the one about the uh, mate who rushed up to the captain of the ship? Uh, the captain, captain, the crew is revolting. Captain says, my, my, they certainly are. Well, I guess business is lousy all over. <laughs> <laughs> now, Gabby, uh, uh, let's see how good it is. <laughs> let's see how good a salesman you are. Pretend I'm a customer and you're selling bad stuff. Now, uh... You knock on my door and start selling me a bathroom. I'm the housewife. I'll knock on the door first. Okay, knock on the door. Be sure you do, because I may be dressed. <laughs> and the door open? The door open, sir. Open Sesame, eh? Good morning, We had a small dog named Sesame that opened the door. <laughs> okay, I'm now standing arms akimbo. Good morning, Mrs. Mandangle. I would like to interest you in... What is my name? <laughs> <laughs> in hypothetical case, uh... Mrs. Fandangle. Mrs. Fandangle. Huh? <laughs> I tried an improvement over the one I've got. <laughs> now, take a moment of your time to interest you in you the world's latest development yes. in the way of a bath tub. I see. Do you, you have it with you? I have one out in the car. I can very quickly bring it in and install it and give you the, the full advantage <laughs> I'll rather tell you about it. I'm not getting to it. Right? <laughs> you can solicit a few of these while well, this is a fur-lined bathtub. Fur-lined bathtub? <laughs> which, which also has a new patented feature. You, you're acquainted with the uh, pleasures that you get in a bubble bath, and you have the bubbles all flowing up and above, and occasionally they overflow and go over the side onto the floor. However, we have a, a new patented feature. It's an air intake valve that surrounds the upper edge of the tub so that as the bubbles come up right as they go right into that line of the tank. And this tub, by the way... Well, I'll, I'll take a half a dozen of those and a cheesecake. <laughs> You're a pretty good salesman. I'll take two of those tubs because I may want to take more than one bath. <laughs> And that, that fur lined uh, tub really intrigues me. I may have the Dana Andrews Club come up and pluck the hair out of that. <laughs> and now then, you're going to play, you bet your life, the Elgin American game. If you run your $20 into more than our other couples, you get a chance at the $2,000 question later. Fenneman, remind our listeners how much the first couple won. 
the fan club president and her partner won $20. Here we go. Let's see how high you can build your $20. What question category did you select? Famous horse racing track. Famous horse racing track. All right, here's your first question. And how much are you going to bet? $10. $10. All right, and what state do you find Belmont Park? Belmont Park? Belmont, that's what I said. <laughs> New York. New York is they're also a good card. They have $30. You now shut up to $30. How much of this swag are you going to bet on this one? 25. 25. 25. She's a high flyer. <laughs> in, in what state? In what state is Hialeah, huh? Miami. Miami, Florida. They now have $55. You have zoomed up to 55 smackers, and here's your third question. How much of this 55 are you going to risk? Uh, $55. $55. In what state is Monmouth Park? Monmouth Park? New Jersey. New Jersey is correct. And the $205. Thanks and good luck from Elgin American Compact. Now, in just one minute, our last couple will play you bet your life, and then we know who gets the crack at the $2,000 question. Fenneman, what's on your mind? Every man and woman will agree that it's much smarter to carry matching accessories. And every man and woman can have that smartness with Elgin American cigarette case and lighter set. They contribute handsomely to a man's well-dressed feeling. They lend glamour to a woman's smoking. Every lighter is precision-made. And for women, many an Elgin American compact can be matched to its own cigarette case, lighter, or to both. See how pleasantly all these sets are priced. How proud you'll look and feel with a stunning cigarette case and lighter to match by Elgin American. Well, the two knows going to earn the most money tonight and get the chance at the $2,000 question. George, who's leading so far? Well, the traveling salesman and the airline hostess are leading with $205. And here's our final couple, Groucho. They've been in a waiting room off stage, so they don't know the secret word is foot. F-O-O-T. Okay, boys, bring them in. Just before we went on the air, our studio audience selected Miss Dorothy Bates, the manageress, and Mr. Mac Wise, a blacksmith. And here they come, folks, meet Groucho Marx. Welcome to the Elgin American Program. And if either of you say the secret word at any time we're talking, you each win a 16-millimeter Apollo Sound movie projector. It's a common word, something you will always have with you. A blacksmith and a manicurist, see? Eh? Where'd you do your manicuring, uh, Dorothy? Beverly Hills Hotel. Are, are you married? Uh... Yes, I am. Yeah. Don't be so defiant about it. <laughs> How did you meet your husband, Dorothy? I met my husband at the day Blade Rose getting into New York City. He was skating? Uh-huh. And you were skating? Mm-hmm. And do uh, you remember what music was playing at the time? No, I don't. And you'll never get a chance to say, they're playing our song. <laughs> Blacksmith, Mac Wise is your name? Weiss, Weiss, and Weiss. Where are you from, uh, Mr. Lee? Oklahoma, Oklahoma. Jesse, Oklahoma. Jesse, huh? Are there many blacksmiths around these days? Well, automobiles kind of got them on the run, but 
There's two classes of blacksmiths. One is working iron, but I'm a horseshoe. You're a horseshoe. You shoe horses, huh? Do you ever shoe flies? Uh, well, I let the horse do that. You let the horse shoe the flies. Huh? Well, that's a likely tale, huh? <laughs> now, where's your shop, Mac? Is it under the spreading chestnut tree? No, the modern blacksmith got it on the mobile truck. And we just go around. Mobile and... truck? You said you were from Oklahoma. That's right. Oklahoma <laughs> mobile. Oh. Well, how do you shoe a horse, Mac? Well, the first thing I do is bend over. Yeah? Put the... Is that safe? Huh? <laughs> you, you make quite a target in that position, Mac. <laughs> Have any of your clients ever kicked about the way you uh, fix them? Hard, too. Suppose a horse doesn't want to have new shoes. How do you sell them on the idea, huh? Well, that's where the blacksmith has to be a little lover, too. The first yeah, thing you, you talk to him? You just walk up and pet him and say, no, whoa, honey, just stand up here. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Easy, baby. <laughs> well, since we've got a manicure here, I better show my hand. For our blacksmith, we have Elgin American Silver Finish Cigarette Case. And for Miss Dorothy, the Silver Finish Compact by Elgin American. Here you are, Dorothy. Thank you very much. Beautiful. Beautiful. Now, Dorothy, what is the average size tip a man leaves after he's held hands for half an hour? Seventy-five cents. Seventy-five? Mm-hmm. Gee, I only give a dime. <laughs> well, who gives the largest tips, uh, old men or young men? Usually old men. Why is that, sir? Well, they usually have more money to spend than the younger folks. You feel this is probably their last contact with life. <laughs> Do you have any uh, any special methods that you use to wangle a big tip out of a customer? Well, you treat them as successfully. Call them whole baby and whole baby. <laughs> you say stand still, honey. You give them a nice massage and. Uh... You give them a massage too, huh? <laughs> no wonder they get seventy-five cents. <laughs> Where did you say you were located, Daddy? <laughs> my hands over in the morning. Huh? <laughs> you ever get tired, Dorothy, sitting there all day holding a man's hand and looking him in the face? No, I don't. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Max, do you ever get tired uh, looking... Oh, never mind. You make, a, you make a very interesting couple, although I'm not exactly sure which one of you I should go to for a manicure. <laughs> now, let's see how you can work together for $2,000. You're the last couple to play the Elgin American game. You beat the other two couples, and you get the $2,000 question. I can't tell you how much they won, but George is off stage, so you might not listen. The traveling salesman and the airline hostess are high with $205. Here we go. Let's see how high I can build you $20. What question category did you select? Songs oh, that ask, that ask questions. Now, here's your first question. You've got $20. How much are you going to bet at this point? And $10. Give me the title of the song. Okay, Stan. How are things in Glockamora? How are things in Glockamora? <laughs> and things are up to a great start. We have $30. <laughs> Remember, you're going for $2,000 tonight now. How much of your $30 are you going to bet on this one? Mm -hmm. $20? All right, here it is. <laughs> Did you ever see a dream walking? Is right. They're on their way. They have $50. Here's your third question. You got $50. How much are you going to bet? $20. $20? All right. What's the name of this song? Play, Stan. Oh, I 
Oh, I think it's the ocean. We now have seventy dollars. Now you got seventy dollars. Here's your last chance to beat the other couple. How much of the seventy are you going to bet? Fifty. You're going to bet fifty. All right. What is that? All right, Max. What is the name of this song? And they wind up with one hundred and twenty dollars. And that means the traveling salesman and the airline hostess of the winning couple and get a chance to win two thousand dollars. Years of the finest designing, engraving, finishing, and craftsmanship have put Elgin American compacts, cigarette cases, and lighters in a class by themselves. Beautiful and durable to use yourself, memorable as gifts for any occasion. See these exquisite accessories in rich colors, silver finish, jeweler's bronze, and sterling silver at any leading jewelry store, department store, or specialty shop. And you can put your cigarette case, lighter, and compact confidence in Elgin American. And here's the winning couple, the traveling salesman and the airline hostess. Well, back again to try for $2,000 of Elgin American's money. Good luck. I'll give you 15 seconds to decide on a single answer between you and talk it over thoroughly. And no help in the audience, please. Here it is for $2,000 in cash. The United States was a young, struggling country in 1778, and European nations refused to recognize it. What was the first European country to officially recognize the United States? All right, what is the answer you two have decided upon? Friend. $2,000 from Elgin American Compact. You said you cleaned up tonight. Not only did you win the $2,000, but you each won a 16 millimeter sound movie projector. But $205, you earned a total of uh, $2,205. Congratulations and thanks to both of you. Elgin American Show, You Bet Your Life, is a John Goodell production. Transcribed from Hollywood, directed by Bob Blunt. Editor, Bernie Smith. Music by Stanley Meyer. Remember, next week's big question pays $1,000. Be sure to tune in again next Wednesday night at this time for You Bet Your Life. Starring Groucho Marx. Presented by the creators of America's most beautiful compact, smartest cigarette cases, and finest dresses at Elgin American. Tonight, folks, have you looked at your compact lately? And that'll do it for us this week, folks. As I said, I mean, poor Groucho was hampered by his radio performances because... Like I said, he may be funny, but his facial features are a lot more funnier. I remember those back when I could see, and uh, they were amazing. 
It's also amazing how they, you know, back then, $2,205 was a lot of money. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, guys, I'm glad you tuned in for the Afternoon Radio Theater Sunday. Pepsi Mama wishes you a wonderful rest of your weekend. And I have, have, I wish you a happy rest of the week. So make sure to tune in tomorrow for Meet My Blind Life, where we'll be talking to our guest, Sugar Lopez, uh, who is from Fresno, California. So that's tomorrow at 10, 10 a.m. Eastern. And... Um, don't forget, if you're listening to us on the Afternoon Radio Theater Sunday podcast, just head on over to Whose Blind Life Is It Anyway? And uh, look for us on YouTube or on uh, our Facebook page. Or you can get us on Twitter at Blind Whose. So uh, go check out the rest of our episodes. Of course, we are always available on podcasts as well, uh, either through the Afternoon Radio Theater Sunday show or on Whose Blind Life Is It Anyway, where you get all of our shows combined. In any way, it was a great seeing listening to you guys listening to these shows rather what the hell i may be losing my mind because i haven't had dinner yet but guys thanks for tuning in we'll see you next week